G'day, mate. Luke Ford back here with Ronnie Goldman. Want to talk about the transgender issue. So Ronnie's got a great work in progress, conservative claims of cultural oppression on the nature and origins of conservophobia. Uh, Ronnie, when we were kicking around possible topics for, for a show, why, why does the transgender issue particularly interest you these days? You know, well, I've been, uh, you know, struggling. I, you know, I, I know that to, to, you know, adequately publicize both uh, conservative claims of, of cultural oppression and my, uh, and my memoir, um, you know, I need to find a way to, you know, relate some of their core intuitions to uh, some of the issues of uh, the day, because you know not everyone, uh, unlike yourself, has the you know patience to, to to read through the entire thing and then think about it. So uh, that that struck me, and you know, I, as as a, a venue that kind of uh, can be used, an issue that can be used to you know concretize and, and, and particularize some of the ideas in that book and i'm just sort of you know at the beginning of that uh process it's actually not it's not that easy when you know i've been spending you know 10 plus years um over you know writing these like large manuscripts and i've got to find a way to somehow convey at least uh part of the gist uh through an 800 word uh essay so that's i you know i'm just trying to uh, train my mind to think in those uh, in, in in those terms and uh, transgenderism. It's the sort of thing which is uh, uh, an issue that's really fraught with all sorts of uh, philosophical questions. Uh, it's also uh, fraught with uh, cultural and, and antagonism. Uh, I, I think probably. Many conservatives see uh, the transgender movement as, you know, the uh, the ultimate uh, embodiment uh, of the, the 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 liberal manipulation uh, to which they feel subject in a host of uh, spheres. So um, that's you know kind of what I had. I, I I wrote about it very briefly in conservative claims of cultural oppression, where I kind of wrote sort of the the idea of a. Uh, of a gender ide- identity is kind of like superseding and then occupying a higher uh, metaphysical plane than uh, visible biological sex. Could it uh, I- itself be viewed as uh, one expression of these, uh, this, these spiritual drives, which I argue in the book were secularized from Christianity and then translated into uh, liberalism. So for, for all those uh, reasons, you know, we get together and we we we, we chat it up, at, you know, every few months. And uh, so I thought uh, um, this is something to try to get some try to get some clarity on to the extent it's possible. Yeah. So w- what are the the basic reasons that uh, conservatives and liberals and leftists have different reactions to to transgender? Well, you know, I I I think that um, so for for conservatives, you know, they always uh, have argued that there is kind of an, an elite culture that uh, is uh, seeking to supplant uh, values and beliefs that originate in uh, in common sense. Uh, you know, the, the the common sense of the good citizen in uh, 
ordinary uh, experience and that somehow, uh, you know, the liberal culture is not simply attempting to uh, advance, you know, uh, procure certain rights for certain groups, but is, you know, through that trying to replace uh, one reality with uh, another by virtue of, uh, you know, occupying the, uh, of, of, of occupying the, uh, the commanding heights of the culture, I think, which is, I think, uh, uh, a, a phrase that uh, I, I got from uh, jo- Jonah Goldberg. Um, and so it seems to, you know, resemble uh, that, it, it, uh, resonate with that. And, and also I, uh, you know, for, for me also, you know, I, I guess at the end of the day, you know, if you were to assess my policy preferences, I would probably be, be uh, center center left, and um, I I I have uh, deep reservations about uh, these uh, invocations of science and expertise on the behalf of the uh, transgender movement because I think that that discredits science and expertise, and it allows it gives. Uh, MAGA conservatives a certain permission structure to uh, you know deny what should be self-evident truths about things like the COVID vaccine or uh, global warming. So I, I think that the uh, the left needs to get its own house in order because to the extent it, it does not, it gives license uh, to the other side to uh, indulge it in, in its own uh, forms of magical thinking. Okay, great. Let me just read a little bit from your your book on okay. on transgender. So you don't have much in here, but you you cut you cut to the chase. So conservatives sometimes oppose the right of transgendered people to access public restrooms designated for the opposite biological sex. Liberals typically dismiss this opposition as just another narrow bigotry. So this is a practical application of this story. But it need not rest on bigotry, and conservatives could make the following case. Biological male is within his rights to self-identify as a female and attach more importance to this inner self-conception than to his biological sex. So I'm flashing back as we're just starting to have this conversation. I'm flashing back to the Declaration of Independence, I believe, that uh, enshrines the pursuit of happiness. Is that Mm -hmm. that correct? Yes. So if that really is a founding ideal of the United States to, to pursue your happiness, that, that seems very much a, a liberal ideal, the classical liberal ideal. And also, if you believe in that ideal, it's hard to argue against people uh, exploring ch- transgender identities. Is, is that fair? Well, it, exploring certainly, uh, but but this this principle in, in in the end, I go on uh, in that argument to make a sort of a utilitarian case for why you know we might not at least in uh, in, in certain certain situations allow uh, transgender uh, women to use uh, women's bathrooms or locker rooms because yes, uh, you know. Uh, even if you agree that happiness is the uh, ultimate ideal, and even if you believe that everyone's uh, happiness counts uh, equally, uh, irrespective of any uh, invidious uh, distinctions you might draw between people, nevertheless, in uh, the world as we know it, um, you can have 
uh, conflicts between people where their respective happinesses uh, come come into conflict. And, uh, you know, ideally we can avoid zero sum games, uh, but sometimes you are forced into that position. I think uh, intellectual honesty compels that recognition. So the question is, um, how do you uh, respond to that? And so um, this is a big issue in, uh, in, 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 in Britain, you know, you have the, uh, the maligned uh, turfs, the uh, otherwise secular left-wing uh, feminists uh, who are nevertheless very critical of, uh, of gender uh, ideology and, and don't like the idea that uh, a biological male can solely on the basis of uh, his uh, self-identification access female spaces now that's again that's 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 different from actual surgery and actual transition but solely on the basis of uh their self-identification uh from the uh you know the pro the transgender uh left they're going to say well tra- the self self-identification is sort of the essence of uh who we are um so to deny that is to deny someone's uh dignity and you know i can i can nevertheless come uh out on the side of the of the turfs at least as to let's say locker rooms even if i concede uh the left-wing premise uh because i i I bring in a utilitarian framework so you've got i think this was the case with uh um i i forget the name of the it was like the, the 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 swimmer u pen uh obvious uh you know you look at him he's obviously male he's he's big uh wide shoulders tall and so forth and he's like uh part of the upad uh, swimming team and apparently from uh at least well, one of his critics says riley Gaines, uh, a number of the uh the swimmers were uh you know emotionally distraught at his uh uh presence in the uh locker room you know undressing and they're seeing uh his junk and uh he's seeing uh theirs and so let's let's just frame that problem in terms of uh in in utilitarian terms so for you know whatever combination of social and biological reasons we have a biological male who feels that notwithstanding that he is female in some higher metaphysical sense which needs to be acknowledged uh, socially which others have you know uh, an obligation to to acknowledge socially but uh, on the other hand you have these uh, you know 20 women or whatever number in the locker room and you know what do they have well they have you know millions of years of uh, biological evolution even before we became modern uh, homo sapiens which uh, predisposed them to be uh, profoundly distraught by that situation. So, you know, I don't, I don't need to pass judgment on their, you know, uh, morally or philosophically on their various claims and which is uh, inherently more uh, legitimate. Uh, I just know that in, in that kind of situation, you've got this one outlier here as compared to, 20 women in that way alone i would go on the side of the riley Gaines and the women who are distraught by his presence 
I can I can do that just because this is a situation where there is an irreconcilable conflict. When it comes to you know bathrooms where you have stalls and so forth, it may be less of an issue. I wouldn't make that argument there necessarily, but in certain situations, it is a zero sum game, and uh, so you know there uh, maybe as sort of you know a rational uh, this worldly liberal uh, you know pragmatic utilitarian that is the argument I would make. So th the question becomes. If that's if that's a cogent way of looking at things, a realistic way that acknowledges zero sum situations, you know, on some occasions, why is it that uh, the better part of uh, the left liberal space will not go that way and will rather, you know, moralistically insist that the 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 transgender woman is necessarily in the right without thinking things through as I have, well, you know, because that's, that's where it connects to the, uh, the book and my broader work, because you, you know, even though liberalism will present itself in uh, pragmatic uh, utilitarian terms, there are some certain uh, spiritual drives at work, which you can uh, observe in uh, the embrace of, uh, of transgenderism in, in some situations, at least. Now, what's considered right wing in America, in popular understanding, is in large part to do with the support for you know lower tax, marginal tax rates, and right. and a vigorous defense of gun ownership rights and and other rights. But what's considered right wing in Europe is not primarily concerned with marginal tax rates, nor with rights. So an obsession or placing a preeminence on rights strikes me very much as a liberal perspective. And so classical liberal is understood as right wing in, in America. But uh, tra the, the traditionalist, such as myself, the tribalist, uh, such as myself, the nationalist, such as myself, does not put a priority on rights because that is so individual focused, right? The traditionalist, the the nationalist, and the tribalist understands that the ultimate reality is not the individual and his rights, but it's the community, the the group, the, the tribe, the nation. So, am I am I onto something here? Yes, American right wing political discourse places tremendous emphasis on on rights, but that is not what it, what uh, constitutes uh, traditional right wing thinking in in Europe for example as to that i mean I, I would say that you know the distinctions that you've articulated are certainly probably you know valid as a uh, historical matter you know all of the uh, yeah the national review conservatives they were uh, they were you know they were classical liberalism in that they say well we are conservatives we are trying to conserve uh, the classical liberalism, which is distinct to America and, and sets it apart from the, uh, the, 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 the tribalism of the uh, old world. Though, you know, certainly after uh, uh, Trumpism and uh, where we are right now, I'm not sure if those distinctions um, are as clear cut as they used to be. But I, I, I understand what you're talking about. Um, no, 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 no dispute um, 
there. Right. And um, so is is the the critique that you know you have certain uh, tendencies uh, in in America, whether expressed in liberal or uh, conservative slash libertarian uh, terms, which you think kind of uh, favor the uh, transgender uh, cause, and that therefore, and that, that therefore that their their cause uh, is is countered by uh, a, a right wing traditionalism as opposed to uh, conservatism. Yeah, I'm just thinking about that as we we talk now. If if you you genuinely believe that uh, founding principle of this country is the individual's pursuit of happiness, then it's hard to then be philosophically consistent with with that pursuit, uh, so long as it does not then impinge on, on the rights of, of others. And, and I guess that is the mainstream American conservative position. Be transgender or you want, just don't impinge on the rights of others. As a trad, as a tribalist, and as a nationalist, uh-huh. I do not place individual uh, happiness at the center of my agenda. I am uncomfortable, unhappy with with this emphasis on, on rights. And I think that there are there are things far more important than the individual and his and his rights. So I, I guess I, I'm seeing just three very uh, distinct reactions here: the the modern liberal left in America, which which uh, glorifies the ability of an individual to transcend mm-hmm. um, traditional concepts of male and female; the modern American conservative movement, which essentially says "be trans or you want." Uh, up to the point that you then impinge on the rights of others, which I do not hold with. And then I guess as a traditionalist, I would say uh, what's most important is the welfare of the group and the welfare of the group from my traditionalist perspective uh, depends upon uh, traditional ways of organizing families, uh, individual lives and communities, including sharp distinctions between uh, male and female. Is there anything there that you want to articulate, talk about? Yeah. So I, I, I would say, so let's say to, to, uh, respond, uh, to what you just said in a way that, you know, articulates my left liberal, uh, you know, center left perspective is that, you know, there are, uh, claims, uh, obviously the transgender movement to the extent they can, they seek to, uh, analogize their own claims uh, to those that were forwarded by the gay rights movement. It's sort of uh, a, a, you know, it's a further extension of the same idea. And if you don't get that, uh, then you're just, you know, once again, behind the times uh, standing athwart uh, history as uh, Buckley said, and uh, you will, you know, the, the judgment of history will be, um against you um so i i do not buy into that standard uh liberal framing completely because i agree that certain tra- transgender claims if you're saying well you know i shouldn't be discriminated against uh on the job in hiring or promotion or in my ability to rent or buy uh a- an apartment those kinds of claims are you know readily uh, analogized to uh, those of the gay rights movements? Those are rights uh, rights uh, based claims. But of course, uh, we know that a lot of the uh, controversy uh, surrounding transgenderism 
uh, is not about those kinds of things. It's about uh, biological males uh, playing in women's uh, leagues. It's about whether uh, to credit the uh, self-identification of a 10-year-old claiming to be transgender. So even though the transgender movement seeks to frame these things in terms of rights, in terms of non-discrimination principles, it's clear uh, to me that they, they raise issues which, you know, whatever your uh, position, uh, are not, cannot be straightforwardly adjudicated in terms of, you know, rights and individual dignity. There's a lot more at play. So that is, yeah, because I come from the center left, I guess the liberal tradition, that is where I would break with the, the transgender uh movement on those sorts of things because I, I think they co-opt uh ideas of rights and non-discrimination to uh you know forward a, an ethos and a worldview that can be uh you know re rejected or uh, heavily uh, scrutinized uh by people who fully uh you know believe in uh in in rights um and I guess, you know, but I, I understand sort of from a traditionalist point of view, and you can you can tell me if I'm I'm fairly uh, characterizing you. I mean, I guess my question is, you know, what is what is the threat uh, that conservatives or traditionalists believe is posed by trans uh, transgenderism to the community because you know when i when i think about it is about you know what threat do you know 10 year olds you know post themselves if they seek puberty blockers but so I'm, I'm thinking about the individual versus the individual but you as a traditionalist would be thinking about the individual uh versus the community but um why you know i mean the liberal suspicion the left liberal suspicion is that you know conservatives are animated by a kind of you know visceral hatred, visceral dislike of certain groups who are different? So the, how how would you uh, refute that if you want to refute that uh, by you know tying right wing opposition to transgenderism to uh, you know the preservation of whatever you deem worth preserving? Yeah, so I'm going to make an attempt, at, and I would begin by by noting the limitations of human reason. So as a traditionalist, a tribalist, and a nationalist, I believe that the traditional ways that we have organized families and communities are superior to new ways of organizing families and communities that are not being time-tested. So I am very frightened of pulling on the thread of certain traditions. Like, I'm not very frightened of pulling on the thread of, say, you know, automatic trucks or driverless cars or technology. That, that does not scare me. But I'm very frightened of, of pulling on the thread of male-female distinctions. I, I'm very frightened of pulling on the thread of uh, family organization and, and communal organization. And so we have traditionally understood that there are overwhelmingly male and female that uh, male and female has a biological reality and 
you don't mess with these basic distinctions. You don't mess with the distinctions between the in-group and the out-group. You don't mess with the distinction between the sacred and the profane. You don't mess with distinctions between parents and children. You don't mess with distinctions between male and female. You don't mess with distinctions between marital sex and non-marital sex, between heterosexual sex and non-heterosexual sex, because we, we fear the moral anarchy that results when we start doing something completely new that hasn't uh, stood the, the test of, of time. So we have all these social practices that we have evolved over thousands of years, and it, it may be difficult to derive them from first principles of philosophy, but rather these practices have evolved over time by trial and error, to, to quote Amy Wax, and we recognize that people do not operate primarily through reason, that the most important things that drive people's behavior are their genetics and their, their uh, environment. And, and so this idea that we can transcend our traditional ways of doing things through the, the power of reason and to leave behind traditional prescriptive roles, traditional customs, traditional habits that have adjusted people to the messy demands of day-to-day -day living for millennia is, is frightening for, for someone uh, like me. So to, to boil another way of just boiling it down, we want to test behavior, how it empirically works out in the real world as opposed to whether our approach to this behavior conforms precisely to philosophical and syllogistic demands. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I mean, look, I, I would say, you know, is it conceivable that, you, you know, if you were to go back, I don't know, 150 years in America where you had people with like, you know, more settled uh, understandings of who were they supposed to be? If you could, you know, notwithstanding all the, the limits, the, you know, what, what strike us a, as restrictions on their lives, you know, is it possible that, you know, if you were to measure, you know, their dopamine and serotonin, it, you know, if you go back in time, that it would be higher than ours, notwithstanding all our rights and, you know, freedoms. Um, you know, that's, that, that's certainly possible. It, it's also possible that if you were to go, to go back, you know, way back to, uh, you know, the tribal society to, uh, you know, Rousseau's noble savage, that might be even more the case there too, because there you would have a much more uh, perfect alignment between, you know, our, uh, our, our biological uh, predispositions and the environment wherein those predispositions uh, evolved, right? A, a, a congruence that has been eroded uh, in various ways um, ever since. So, you know, I, you know, so I can, I can kind of accept the idea of a more natural past, you know, certainly I can see it from a conservative perspective, but I can also do it from, you know, that of, uh, of Rousseau's noble savage as well. And it may well be, you know, the, the, the case that sort of there's a certain, you know, tragic irony in the human condition that, you know, yeah, we, we, what sets us apart uh, is that we develop these uh, minds and that even though these minds, you know, helped us in all sorts of, you know, easily understandable ways in terms of, uh, you know, survival and security, nevertheless, uh, created certain disequilibria 
that, ah. you know, create, created certain pathologies. I, I accept that's possible. I, I just had a thought if I can jump in. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I think part of being traditional and also goes along with being tribal at Nationalist is a, a fear of unlimited human freedom that we fear because the traditionalist will almost always have a skeptical view of human nature. So we, we don't believe that human nature is basically good. And so we fear what people will get up to if they are not given strong guardrails. And we, we, yeah. we recognize, we're intelligent enough to recognize that some of the guardrails that have guided humanity for millennia do need to be revised. So it's not like we never will accept any change, but we want you know good empirical evidence rather than philosophical and syllogistic evidence. And we, we just have this fear of the human being, particularly the human being on his own deciding what is right. I think I, think I am firmly in, in the traditionalist and probably the, the nationalist and the tribalist camp with a great fear of the human being unencumbered the human being uh, just deciding things on his own. It, it, am I coming from a traditional that, that, perspective look, that, there? That, that, that resonates with me and that, you know, I, I think about, uh, to, you know, to call attention to, uh, to my memoir, uh, The Star Chamber of, uh, of Stanford. I mean, I, I think to, if, to the extent you characterize traditionalism as you just have, uh, it, it, it is a traditionalist. The memoir is very uh, traditionalist, uh, at least in, in in some of its uh, implications. You know, I look back, and you know, I'm you know struggling to get you know generate some publicity for myself. But I, I so obviously I look back on uh, on my life and think, you know, should I have done X, Y, Z uh, differently? You know, maybe I couldn't have done anything other than I did, but. To the extent that question is uh, ponderable, I, you know, I think to myself like, you know, yeah, okay, maybe I upheld these uh, highest philosophical values of being, you know, critical and uh, and self-critical and not taking anything for uh, granted and burrowing down to, uh, you know, first premises, and uh, that has its virtues and and all, but you know, I, I kind of psychologically, I see like that made me. Uh, you know, very incompatible with my academic uh, environment, you know, and, and I, I think, you know, what if I've been just like a little less critical, a little more willing to just absorb uh, ambient uh, mores for all their flaws and, you know, arguable contradictions. Yeah, if I just like, you know, s jumped in that swimming pool more wholeheartedly rather than sought to maintain, you know, I might've ended up in a different uh, place. So that, yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no, there's no question that, um, you know, that, 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 that led me astray. Now the question is, you know, I'm sort of a freaking unusual case, but you know, is there some, I, I guess the traditionalist concern would be, you know, is there uh, some version of this like quest for uh unqualified unadulterated uh self-definition which is you know sort of leading to the more you know commonplace mundane uh pathologies um that we see uh you know a a around us you know um that's that's what would have to be 
shown to me. So, you know, and I'm not saying I'm not persuadable, but let's take, you know, what is a, uh, a commonly acknowledged focal point of uh, populist uh, conservatism, you know, the uh, Rust Belt, Midwestern, perhaps uh, Appalachian, you know, rural white person who, you know, uh, can no longer make a uh, respectable living in a manufacturing job, uh, feels uh, alienated from uh, the uh, the wider uh, the wider culture, I, I, I guess. But you know, how do you weigh those respective aspects? And you know, is that is that the result of these uh, dangerous liberal drives you've? Uh, identify to seek all meaning in the individual or is it the result of uh you know republican administrations uh batting down uh unions or deindustrialization or you know what automation uh globalization of uh trade that's that's the real question how I I I can I, I can grant obviously from my own experience the the reality of the cultural the 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 potentially pernicious cultural forces you've identified, but how much do they actually explain as opposed to these uh, you know more more tangible factors? Yeah, good question. As you're talking, I, I just realized it's not like uh, liberals, conservatives in the American sense, and, and traditionalists are more or less pro-freedom. They're just more or less pro-freedom in different categories of life. So a, a traditionalist would would be okay with people pursuing their in-group identity to, to the max. Like if you just want to hang out with your in-group, you just want to live with Jews or with blacks or with, uh, I don't know, Nordic Christians, uh, like someone who's traditional uh, shouldn't have a problem with that. So if you want to pursue... Uh, in-group identity, you, you want to pursue uh, exclusiveness with your with your tribe. Uh, the the traditionalist will not have a problem with that, while people on the left will have a great deal of problem with that kind of bigotry. And conservatives will will vary depending on how liberal the the conservative is. On the other hand, if you want to explore sexual freedom and say take on uh, play with transgender identity, then uh, the left is much more open to people exploring sexual freedom. Uh, the freedom of the marketplace, the free market, then American conservatives, a.k.a. classical liberals, are okay with a maximum of freedom in the free market. Both traditionalists and people on the left are much more skeptical and want to put more limits on the, the free market. So as I'm talking to you and thinking out loud to you, it's not like there's one spectrum in this discussion that is consistently more pro-freedom than another. Is that fair? Yeah, it could be. I, I mean, let's say to, you know, take these examples of uh, traditionalist uh, self-segregation, you know? So obviously you have, you have certain regions, I think like, uh, uh, you know, Idaho, uh, particularly you have a lot of uh, white conservatives, uh, moving there, feeling maybe we can sort of reconstitute some microcosm of uh, what we think conservatives, what we think America ought to be, 
something which we're unable to enact, you know, nearly anywhere uh, else. I think you have people like uh, Eastern uh, Oregon, Washington, you know, wanting to join them. So you've got you've got other examples. You've got obviously, um, you know, religious uh, schools uh, for which uh, conservatives, uh, religious conservatives, have long uh, sought sought vouchers. Um, you've got and, and obviously you know a lot of evangelical churches to the extent that like so much of life's activities you know are subsumed within that that rubric you know it really kind of becomes the village like and you know it is it is it is it is true that uh you know people who are really on the left have a uh, a visceral um uh, dislike of that self-segregation in itself. So, you know, you've had, uh, you know, c- campus controversies where, um, you know, you couldn't, religious campus groups couldn't, re- couldn't uh, refuse membership to people who didn't accept their tenets because that was exclusionary. You know, so that's a sort of, that is kind of, a, I, I agree with that is like the, the, the malice of the left, the cultural revenge of the left, not recognizing these kinds of self-segregated uh, enclaves. But uh, you know, I, um, I, for me, speaking more as a let's say a liberal rather than a leftist, it's not my objection to the self-segregation itself. Uh, so much as a, a certain distrust of right wingers' professed uh, motivations, if if they were really content, uh, satisfied with that kind of self segregation, we're going to create our own micro communities. You know, it's just like you know Plymouth, Mayflower Landing in Plymouth. You know, I wouldn't really care that much. You know. I wouldn't care that they would, you know, prefer not to have, you know, people, you know, like, you know, Sephardic looking Jews like me in their midst. Like it wouldn't bother me, but I, I don't, I don't trust that right wingers uh, would really kind of restrict themselves in, in that manner and not seek to impose their vision on the wider society. That's for the simple reason that, uh, you know, as you've said, you know, traditionalists, you know, do not respect rights. It's not, you know, most fundamentally about being reasonable and respecting rights. It's a a certain, you know, commitment to uh, purported timeless truths. So that's why I don't trust that, even though they may present uh, their goals in these arguably defensible uh, terms, I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, so I, I mean, I'm self-conscious about this, telling you the actual. Uh, okay, but let me jump back to my, my question. Okay. My question was, is it not true that the various teams, the various philosophies we're discussing, uh, none of them are substantially more freedom-oriented than the other? They just welcome freedom in different areas and are skeptical of freedom in different areas from each other. Okay, well, I think this 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 issue goes to you know something that I, I, I think I discussed at, at some length in conservative claims with Nietzsche 
and naturalism and the biological substratum of political ideology. Because in the end, you know, we are uh, the products of these inherited impulses as either, you know, stimulated or frustrated by culture. And depending on how we've turned out, and we can turn out in many different ways, we want a world in which that inheritance is validated. And so, yeah, insofar as like what you're saying, that everybody ultimately has some understanding of, of, of freedom, then yes, I agree. That's because that's kind of the modern way of articulating our visceral uh, sense that we are, um, you know, committed to hero systems. So yes, uh, you know, and that's that's something in the book. It, it's just sort of in conservative claims. So there's this underlying, you know, when you when you take naturalism to its logical conclusion, there's something you know fundamentally you know symmetrical between uh, conservatives and uh, and the left, and that can be yeah. articulated in terms of freedom. Now you used a. a well-worn phrase, impose their vision. It seems to me from just the, the biological perspective, and then it seems to translate out into human societies, is that every living thing tries to create an environment around it which is most conducive to its thriving. So I, I could get my political philosophy from eucalypti. Eucalypti get uh, transported around the world, and then when they when they take up you know, a little bit of space in California, they generally emit compounds that make it impossible for other living things to live underneath mm -hmm. them. They frequently outcompete native vegetation for water, and they have, you know, tremendous charms and tremendous dangers. I mean, they're, they're filled with oil so that they, if they catch, catch a light, they right. can be very dangerous. And so it's like the eucalyptus question, is the eucalypti good? Well, the eucalypti is good in some circumstances, bad in other circumstances. Well, I'll compete native vegetation in, in many circumstances. So if you, if you are pro-native vegetation, you are going to be quite skeptical of the claims of eucalypti rights. And, and so I would just, that seems to mirror both from biology and to human societies. Does not every living thing and every human essentially want to create an environment around it that's most conducive to its hero system. It's thriving. Yeah, and that and that, that makes sense to me. And I guess the 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 analogy is you you know you you would have to know quite a bit of a bi biology to you know to see the eucalyptus tree as a danger because sort of you know on its on its face, hey, looks looks great. What's the problem? If you think there's a problem, there's really a problem with you. And I guess the, I guess this goes back to a, Amy Wax and maybe you know all sorts of cultural uh, emancipatory uh, innovations on their face like the eucalyptus tree. What's the problem? You know how can you object to them? But if you accept that human uh, psychology, uh, human group membership is you know at least as complex as uh, as trees, probably a great a great deal more complex. Then yeah, you could say it is uh, perfectly uh, conceivable that you could have these uh, exogenous uh, exports that undermine uh, something in I guess the the 
the indigenous uh, conservative or, or, you know, or in the indigenous American culture, um, whatever, whatever you might uh, call it. But, you know, I would, so theoretically, I can't, I can't dismiss uh, the argument, but you know, you've got um, one can see if you look all over the world, okay, you have, plenty of societies that don't have these uh, multicultural conflict that you find in the uh, in the US and uh, Western Europe and yet they seem to uh, you know suffer from many of the same you, you know arguable pathologies or what, what conservatives seem to be pathologies so you've got you know low birth rates in uh, in Hungary, in, uh, in in Russia, you know, uh, societies that self-consciously uh, disclaim uh, what traditionals see as, as these these various little pathologies, but they have they have you know a lot of these these pro- the same problems and 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 a lot of them uh, to a greater degree in terms of low fertility rates, uh, abortion if you see that as a problem, uh, divorce, uh, alcoholism, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. You have low birth rates in. Uh, uh, Korea, China, Japan, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, these, these, these ethno states, uh, essentially. Um, so I, 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 again, it's kind of, I would say, I'm not, uh, I'm not going to dismiss the conservative argument a priori, but I would draw your attention, uh, to these, uh, these, these, these examples, which I draw, draw your ideology into question. Okay, so it seems like there's a, a dominant type of discourse about uh, democracy and the trajectory of democracy in the United States and the West, and that is that we are ever evolving, though occasionally taking steps back towards greater and greater human rights and human dignity. That we're constantly evolving in a in a you know, a good direction where we're giving, you know, recognizing and extending rights to to more and more groups. Uh, my my trad critique is that you can't extend rights to one group without reducing rights to to another group. So the the conventional perspective on civil rights is this is wonderful. We're extending dignity and rights to all Americans. My traditional perspective is you are extending rights and dignity to some Americans while destroying rights for other Americans, such as deciding, you know, who they want to employ, who they want to rent to, uh, who they, you know, want to build a, a community with. So my my trad perspective is that uh, in the West today, in the United States today, you, you cannot extend additional rights to one group without taking away rights from another group. H- how do you react to that type of thinking? Yeah, well, look, there's no question if you have any realistic conception of human nature, you know, um, yeah, you could say certainly Southern Southern whites who uh, had felt, you know, had had, you know, uh, any number of privileges over blacks for, uh, you know, hundreds of years, you know, even, you know, well after uh, slavery ended, human nature being what it is when uh you know federal power uh sought to impede that uh yeah i mean i don't i don't deny that it's it's natural 
that they would feel uh, aggrieved. I mean, if you ask me, like, well, if you had been born there, if you've been a, you know, a, a, wouldn't you be the same? Can you really? I yeah, I guess I can say, you know, you're right. I mean, you would you would have that feeling, um, and, and and reasonable or not, from a god's eye point of view, it would be completely understandable from a human point of view, and. Um, so yeah, I if you want to say like these liberal interventions have had you know human costs that were a you know inevitable and b have not been you know fully you know forthrightly uh, transparently acknowledged by liberals. I, I guess my answer to that is uh, yes, uh, that's that's correct, but. But the answer to those questions uh, is separate from the question of, you know, are we are we ultimately a better society as a, a result of stigmatizing and uh, punishing what we consider to be these uh, reprobate uh, impulses, notwithstanding that we couldn't fault somebody for having those uh, in in those conditions still. So I guess we're coming back to the, you know, utilitarianism, which I invoked, you know, later, I would say overall in the, in, in the long run, yeah, you had one generation, which felt uh, maybe, maybe more than one generation that felt, you know, profoundly uh, alienated from these interventions, which is also how they felt that, you know, alienated with uh, emancipation and uh, defeat by the union. I mean, maybe it's a difference of, uh, of of degree and 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 flavor, but not necessarily of uh, of kind. But um, are we overall better in the long run after that uh, one or two generations dies out? Uh, to that, I, I would I would answer in the affirmative. Okay, I want to ask you. Before there was transgender identity, there was gay identity, which, from a, a traditional Jewish perspective, is just unfathomable like why on earth would you form your identity based on a particular sexual orientation so how do liberals conservatives and trads react to to gay identity i i would assume i mean conservatives were much more hostile to it now that they're coming around uh liberals were always more friendly to the idea of of gay identity but what's underneath this? Like, why is it that liberals have been much more open and friendly towards gay identity and people on the right have been much more hostile? Okay, well, I mean, let me let me start out by saying, you know, I think you have uh, a, a lot of gay people, and uh, my instinct is to say most gay people can't really uh, defend that, but certainly, you know, there are a lot of gay people who are... Uh, they're gay, but they certainly don't base their identity on uh, on, on on their gayness. You, you know, it really is, even though it sounds kind of uh, you know cliche. Oh yeah, they just happen to like men. You know, otherwise that you know their identity is uh, spread out over all sorts of things, just like it is with uh, uh, heterosexual people, and uh, their gayness is just uh, you know part of it. And in terms of you know ordinary life and ordinary interaction you know they're not uh apart from their gayness they're not uh really uh that that different so i i, I you know now 
there are there's that group of people and and I, I think that needs to be acknowledged because I think you know you know uh, traditionalist conservatives they become infuriated by um, instances where that really does become you know the fulcrum of identity. So you have you know uh, yeah you have you have gay gay pride uh, parades where uh, people are uh, performing uh, sexual acts on each other. Uh, where there might be kids, it's certainly a public a public place, and uh, yeah, I agree. Like that is that is seen as like liberatory, uh, an, an assertion of uh, legitimate rights. You know, in reality, the objection has nothing to do with uh, homosexuality. I mean, we don't uh, we don't allow you know uh, heterosexual couples to do that in uh, in public. But because it is sort of part of this broader movement of uh, emancipation and uh, enlightenment, uh, you know, it cannot be criticized uh, on the same terms as you would, uh, you know, heterosexual analogs. But that is um, that pro- that kind of problem. This, and I'm just, I'm just using that as as an example to to address the broader point you know that can be achieved by just being more uh consistent liberals right applying uh the same uh principles to to everyone even though i understand that can be problematic i mean what that means can be it's not always so straightforward but that you can apply that i ideal you don't have to be a traditionalist uh, to oppose those kinds of things. Now, they, there is a um, a kind of a, a left-wing uh, impulse, this left-wing sec- secular religion, where even these secular liberal uh, criticisms of certain expressions of gay identity, not all of them, um, are just seen as just reactionary. So, you know, that is, that is a problem, but I don't think that uh, traditionalism is the only solution. Right, but why is it that liberalism is much more open and welcoming to gay identity and conservatism is is more skeptical of that sort of identity? Forget the the type of sex, like people on the right accept that there are men who like men and have sex with men, but just from a, a right-wing perspective, basing your identity on that is astounding and bizarre, while from a a conventional liberal perspective that is welcomed and, and, and praised because these people have been persecuted and and uh, otherized, and so we now want to welcome them into the community of dignity. Can you elaborate why liberals and conservatives have such different reactions to gay identity? Well, because because gay because because. Uh, gay identity, just like uh, transgender identity, uh, can be, uh, I guess, weaponized, for lack of a better term, uh, into this uh, ongoing hero system, this ongoing uh, struggle to uh, transcend and uh, stigmatize the uh, benightedness and uh, parochialism of the of the conservative slash traditionalist. Uh, culture so it's you know it's kind of, it's an it's 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 an f you uh essentially uh so you know that is why 
these identities, you know, there's a there's a liberal basis for identity, which is that you know, people have been similarly discriminated against, so obviously they're going to be identify uh, with each each other. So there, you know, identity is a reaction to and and the beginnings of a remedy to uh, discrimination. But if you go further left, then you're going to see that uh, identity it's not it's not just sort of a a uh, pragmatic uh, response to discrimination. It is it is that which is going to uh, invalidate, debunk, uh, stigmatize the the mores of uh, of conservatives. So that's why conservatives don't uh, don't 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 like it because uh, the commitment is more robust than uh, individual autonomy. I mean, they are they are right that they are they are seeking to uh, marginalize. Uh, certain mores as a sort of you know backwards uh you know irrespective of of whether or not they they impede other people's rights so out of just the the legal possibilities why why is some sexual identity celebrated and other perfectly legal forms of sexual identity not celebrated and let's just say america today why is it that say gay identity and trans identity is celebrated while um, a Hugh Hefner approach is perhaps less celebrated, at least in certain circles. Like, why celebrate some sexual identities and not others? And we're only talking here about um, legal forms of uh, sexual expression. Um, are you? Uh, I mean, can you think of uh, an 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 example uh, where one identity has been upheld? At the expense of, uh, of 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 another. Um, well, gay pride. I mean, I mean, there's no hetero pride or, or marital sexual pride. There's not much veneration of, of, like, say, married couples who enjoy really rigorous, uh, you know, sex lives with with each other exclusively. Um, mm-hmm. That that is not a a celebrated form of sexual identity. Uh, there's gay pride. There's no you know, straight pride, marital, hetero, straight, you know, marital pride. Right. I, I guess so. I, I guess. So let me, let me think about, so to that example, you know, why is there no, you know, straight pride parade, you know, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the left wing uh, response is going to be um, the, the left wing response is going to be, well, you know, the, the, the you know, Straight people are the the dominant norm. Uh, in any case, they need they they don't need any special exercises to uh, uphold or exercise their pride because you know their um their you know the, the default is just you, you know uh, hetero heterosexuality. So to the extent that you are you know seeking uh, unnecessary pride, that's sort of an implicit way. Of you know dis- disparaging the claims to equality of th- these uh, marginalized groups, but I would think maybe let's take another example. Uh, what about the example of the uh, the, the trad wife, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I, mm-hmm. I guess who uh, seeks to you know approximate these you know nineteen fifties uh, mores uh, to various. Uh, Degrees, you know, claim certain rights, but they're, you know, generally uh, submissive to their uh, husbands. Yeah, I mean, you're right. There is like sort of 
They are certainly they can unlike heterosexuals uh, writ large, um, they can certainly uh, claim a certain marginalization. I mean, they're certainly not people who are uh, celebrated, you know, in the media or Hollywood or uh, advertisements, or and yet they believe their uh, vision of the uh, of the good is uh, ultimately the most fulfilling for uh, beings. Uh, such as uh, such as we are, and I guess, um, yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, they are they are not seen as a uh, legitimate identity. They are uh, characterized as a, you know grifters of various sorts. You know, how could you advocate for these traditional gender roles when you're operating this you know big YouTube channel, etc. Et um, so you know, at the at the end of the day, I, I I don't I'm not discounting this conservative intuition that there is sort of a certain you know cultural bias uh, towards uh, you know certain identities rather than others. You know, obviously I'm, I'm not one uh, to deny the, uh, the 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 narrowness of uh, of the left, given that you, you know what I've written. But I my my counsel that traditional is saying yes that what you're saying does does exist but you know that doesn't mean that that all these groups don't have uh, on the left don't have any kind of you know grievance whatsoever you know i think and that's i guess i'm asking it's it's sort of a uh uh, but but ultimately, then I'm, I'm I'm just asking traditionalists to be good Christians, right? I'm just asking them to turn the other cheek. I'm sorry. I'm I'm asking. I'm, I'm saying yes. You are being sort of uh, insulted uh, by these groups in the core of uh, your uh, your identities. But I'm I'm still saying you still want to be kind of uh, you know fair minded. And uh, I guess the meaning of turning the other cheek, and yes, there are these uh, affronts to you, but recognize that, that, that you know these these other groups have a, you know in various contexts been aggrieved uh, as well. So you know, I, I'm I mean I'm not a Christian. I don't know that I would turn the other cheek, but insofar as people uh, subscribe to that, then I can I can I can certainly recommend it to them. Yeah, there's a great uh, line in, in your book where you quote Peter Berger. He says, it is still natural to become a Catholic priest in Rome in a way that it is not in, in America. And so that, that line has stuck with me and has helped me approach and understand Christian nationalism in the sense that uh, many people who, are, who would be tagged as Christian nationalists and may even identify that way themselves they probably have the same basic impulses of tens of millions of Americans uh, 50 years previous, but in a different cultural milieu, they felt no mm -hmm. need to identify as Christian nationalists. But because now... The background, yeah. Yeah, now that the background has changed, like if you, if you are swimming and the, the current that you're swimming against goes from one mile an hour to five mile an hour, you have to swim five times as hard to just stay even. And so I would expect that millions of American Christians or those who just feel some kind of kinship with, with Christianity, they feel the, the current in wider society flowing against them in a way that I would presume that Americans in the 1950s did not. And so they have to 
compensate to just try to stay even, and their compensation is now called Christian nationalism, which in one sense seems completely radical and out of step with the, the main direction of Christianity in this country for 230 years. But the environment that uh, these people are swimming in has completely changed, and it's become understandable. Uh, now that, you know, what we call Christian nationalists and called it, you know, scary thing. It's a reaction to this, this tide that we're swimming in, which is increasingly flowing against say public displays of Christianity. Any thoughts? Yeah. Well, you know, so you've got this, uh, Christian nationalism, you've got, you've got this, uh, critique of it, which you'll find, you know, both by liberals and, you know, like the, the, the never, uh, Trumper, uh, conservatives, like, the, you know, David French, uh, Tim Alberta. It's a they, they say it is a uh, perversion of uh, real uh, Christianity. Uh, the, uh, I, I, the, the 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 idolatry of uh, religious values in uh, secular form. The idolatry of Donald uh, of, of of Donald of Donald Trump, and and, and you know people have observed that you know many people who. Uh, are Christian nationalists. These are not people who, you know, are spending a lot of their time really pouring over the Bible or uh, going to uh, church or uh, meditating that it's really become uh, much more of a uh, cultural identity. You know, Jesus has become kind of this uh, Rambo uh, figure, you know, he's a, a super, the muscular uh, Jesus superseding the uh, outdated uh, sissy uh, Jesus who turns the other cheek. Um, so you know, with uh, uh, you've got you've got you've got you know crosses being replaced by swords. Some have said I don't know whether that's that's the case. So that's kind of the liberal critique, and I think maybe your question is well, uh, maybe there is all of this uh, you know unseemliness. Uh, which uh, you know was sort of you know um, much much less overt, understated in the traditional uh, dispensation, and things that we you know we don't we don't uh, like. But um, is it your question? Is it is it understandable? Not be given the uh, ever increasing. Uh, cultural inroads made by this kind of uh you know elite uh elite culture and you know on on when i when i think about uh the book i i think i have to agree that yes that's correct because at, at the end of the day i examine all you know all manner of things from uh theistic belief uh religious neutrality to all, all sorts of seemingly disconnected things and i i in the book i seek to conceptualize the 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 entire uh all these cultural culture wars whatever the ostensible issues as this conflict of the buffered self and the the poorest self so in the end yes i mean i, I guess i would have to see what's going on with christian nationalism as simply kind of i guess the the latest uh iteration of this pre-modern versus modern uh conflict uh which can you know manifest itself in all sorts of ways which is you know always you know they're running running underneath 
Uh, so yeah, I mean that that's it's that's again sort of you know I I, I talk about a lot about the you know rhetorical uh, disadvantages under which uh, conservatives uh, labor, and I guess the idea the 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 phenomenon of Christian nationalism is perhaps an, an illustration of that because certainly on the surface at least you know there certainly is a conflict between what who they are and how they live and and a lot of traditional understandings of uh christianity most importantly the the division between secular power and uh you know religious or eternal power the city of city of man the city of god so you know and so liberals can pounce on those uh hypocrisies it really is a kind of uh, of paganism, you, you know. It's the golden calf in some ways, but you would say, given given that they are poor selves operating under these particular conditions, well, that that makes sense, right? They are pre They have a a, a pre modern understanding of themselves, and so yeah, it, w- w- where are you coming from? Does does make sense? So I'm wondering if there are people who have absorbed this uh, modern buffered secular liberal perspective on life and they just don't feel alive and in their soul they just want to feel alive and they may try to reach this through certain forms of extreme sexuality but I think for millions of Americans they are tired of not feeling alive or for millions of people around the world they're tired of not feeling alive in the conventional dominant you know, liberal worldview and so they are drawn to strong in-group identities be they racial in-group identities uh, religious in-group identities so they're becoming trad wives they're joining hamas they're becoming racial nationalists they're becoming christian nationalists uh this this buffered identity just lacks excitement i think for millions of people and so they they start they start finding that other forms of living that that have a strong in-group identity, either as a trad wife or as a member of Hamas, makes them feel alive. I think a lot of people want to feel alive, and the Buffett identity does not enable them to feel alive. What do you think? Right. It is well. That's that's the that's the internal contradiction of the Buffett identity. It is a hero system. But it's a hero system that purports to be the transcendence of all hero system. So this kind of you know genuinely self uh, self critical uh, and, and you know uh, socially critical attitudes, you know, does it can it offer a certain uh, satisfaction uh, to some people? Um, you know, certainly, I, I guess it does. It does for me. I mean, it's it's my I guess it's my primary form of satisfaction for whatever whatever it's 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 worth but certainly uh most most people for most people it's not a necessity and yeah they want a, a certain uh, invigoration they want uh you know feeling alive they want their dopamine to be higher they want their serotonin uh to be higher and uh everything you've you've described is a way of uh of doing that and yeah i mean you can't uh you think, can you really, you know, blame these sort of advanced primates such as they are for uh, turning on their critical uh, faculties for the sake of uh, something which is just like, you know, 
more essential than being truthful, more essential uh, than being in the in the in the right. Um, I, I mean, how 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 can you, you know, fault uh, that? That's asking to fault that is essentially to, uh, I guess, to to ask an animal, a mortal uh, animal, to uh, rise uh, to become a, uh, a a god. And you can see how there are you know impulses in our cultural uh, heritage which would uh, uh, promote that. We also see why it is. Uh, it is it is it is foolish. So um, you know, I I I yeah, I I'm, I'm sort of you know I, that's why I'm not I don't I'm not an intensely moralistic uh, person. That's why even though I've said I'm I'm you know center left, if I like see like you know conservatives or traditionalists on TV, I don't I you know I don't. Even though it's completely foreign, completely alien, I don't, I don't become, you know, infuriated because I, 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 I understand human nature. I, you know, my own impulses are like rather unusual, so that gives me a sort of a, a perspective to see the the, the default uh, for what it is and to see the the continuities between otherwise different groups uh, for 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 what they are. Um, and you know, I would like, yeah, I would like to promote that sort of uh, tolerance, but there's, 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 there are reasons why you know most people of any persuasion are not, uh, not predisposed towards it. Why do you think nudist hasn't become a celebrated sexual identity? A nudist? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I haven't heard anything about. Uh, Nudist. I mean, I don't know when the movement started. I, I, I assume it's rather long standing. I assume it maybe, you know, received a new impetus in the 60s and 70s as a return to uh, nature and uh, natural uh, authenticity. But it seems like there it's not it's not really like uh, an issue. Like everybody agrees that. Uh, in society, you you obey the law, but if, if they want to go to um, they want to go to their own beaches, their own resorts, uh, somewhere they can do what they want, right? And no one really uh, cares. And like they've accepted that society rejects uh, nudism, and the larger society has accepted that they can, you know, within their enclaves, do whatever they want. And it's pretty uh, laissez-aller, right? Pretty uh, live and uh, and let and let live, I guess. Um, but it's not celebrated like gay identity. It's not. It's not. Uh, yeah, and it, and it's like because you know because I don't. I never thought of nudism as uh, an, an identity, in the sense that it, I I never thought of it as kind of uh, a call for a certain sort of recognition. I mean, I just, I, I just like these people, they feel more natural, you know, for whatever reason, in whatever way, being nude and being around other nude people. It's like, you know, like you like, you know, them being nude with other people, like me, like getting in a warm bath. Like it just like, it just feels good. So I don't, I don't know that nudists, 
again, I don't know. I don't know much about the movement, so I, you know, I could be totally wrong. But the the fact, the very fact that they're not in the nude, would indicate that they're not really sort of an identity group seeking recognition. They simply, you know, prefer being nude where they can be nude, and 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 they've like compromised with society accordingly. And there's no, there's no. They're not in the news because there's no conflict given what they want. I think maybe I'm wrong. Okay. Uh, New York Times in 1994, between basically 1994 and 2023, it mentioned polyamory once, one article per year. Then in 2023, there were a record 27 articles about polyamory. And in 2024, the New York Times is on pace for 66 articles about polyamory. It's received exhaustive treatment in New York magazine. So much of our elite media is now doing articles about polyamory. Do you have any thoughts why this has become so hot? I, 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 I mean, it's, I haven't really thought much about polyamory. I mean, I, I the, 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 the disparities you've highlighted are certainly there you know, for a a reason. I know. I mean, is it going to be? Is the polyamorous lifestyle going to be hardest towards you know some end? I'm not really. You know, I guess I'm not completely clear what polyamory is. Is it, does it mean they make? It can uh, mean anything. Okay. That's why it's so cool, right? It's anything that you're into. If you want to have multiple women, that's polyamory. If you're a woman who enjoys two men fighting for you, that's polyamory. If um, it, it's so elastic that uh, I think that's... So, I mean, isn't it then just like, um, to the extent that it's that elastic, I mean, isn't it just like a, a, a sort of a, a glamorized term for having some kind of uh, fetish, for lack of a better term, outside of just like straight, you know, monogamous, heterosexual intercourse. I, I mean, I, I guess like, and I guess I, I just, and if you're into something else, then doing that instead. So I think like, if that's what, polyamory if it's that flexible and elastic i mean why not just call that you know freedom i you know like i i i guess it's one more instance um to the extent that polyamory then becomes uh an, an identity isn't it just like it's like one more uh example of, of people turning uh, what should just be an unglamorized, fine, you're free, do what you want, uh, a baseline, unglamorized, take it for granted, commitment to human freedom becomes fetishized and uh, glamorized into some sort of uh, transgressive identity, I guess. That's, that's what it, that's what it is, is maybe it, it sounds like going on instead of even you could say you know people are like you know kind of couples are experimenting or you know um you could put it in that way but i but i guess it's being framed in terms of uh of 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 a new identity that demands 
recognition is that what you you are thinking is going well on? it's it seems to be the hot new thing in elite media circles and i'm not claiming that the, the coverage is universally fawning or praising or saying we need to recognize this and, and honor and, and accord it dignity it's just a hot topic of conversation and it's certainly not in in a condemning way from the new york times and then on right. down from the major media there's just been an explosion in it and i don't think you would have this understanding and empathetic coverage of polyamory if it was primarily uh, Mormons in Utah, uh, men having multiple wives. So, so from a from a trad tribal and nationalist perspective, I would want a crackdown on uh, men having multiple wives in Utah because I th- I would be afraid that it would pull on the the delicate fabric of society that we need. We need to discipline men to just be with one woman, and so just the the very existence of of uh, you know above ground families with one husband and multiple wives uh, flourishing in Utah as a trad uh, and as a nationalist, I would I would regard that as a threat to the family fabric of of my society. Now, as a as a libertarian, if I were a libertarian, then of course I wouldn't have a problem with it. Uh, but if you're a liberal left, you would think it's exploitive of women. And if you're a conservative, you would have concerns that it's pulling on the fabric of society. How would, how would you view the different, the different political philosophies reacting to, let's say, widespread, above ground, though short of legal, uh, one man with multiple wives going on in Utah? So, uh, you know, I, I think that... Um... Certainly, uh, I, I, I think that the conservative point, the general point is well taken that, like, yeah, historically enforced monogamy is much better than uh, social, than, 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 you know, polygamy based on whatever power, you know, the very upper crust, you know, happens to have. You know, that's not, I guess that's a, a conservative intuition. Yeah. But it's also a certain kind of an egalitarian intuition as well. That sort of, you know, to have a functioning society, you need to have uh, a, a certain degree of egalitarianism uh, as, as well, of which enforced monogamy is uh, is one is one expression. But you know, I guess I would I would say you you know to uh, conservatives who are suspicious of. Uh, redistributionist uh schemes you know i know that you know today obviously utah as a condition of joining the union had to renounce uh polygamy and that has since been renounced by the mainstream mormon church even though you have certain like i guess outliers maybe outlying cults uh there in utah or uh nevada that are still uh committed to uh traditional Mormon uh, Mormon polygamy, but um, it seems like um, to the extent that y- you know you want this socially stabilizing uh, monogamy, you know the threat to that is not really you know these outlying cults in uh, uh, traditional Mormon cults out in the deserts of. Uh, Utah or, uh, you know, molesting minors or whatever they're doing. 
it's um, economic inequality between uh, between different uh, males, right? Because if you know, if we assume we, you know women want you know uh, are, are hypergamous, and they want at least their own to to, to mate with someone who is uh, you know at least their social status and preferably higher. Well, that you, you know that that is in itself a threat to uh, to monogamy. And then you have, if you have a society, a uh, very a neoliberal or a, a libertarian society, uh, which uh, attaches uh, little importance to uh, to inequality. Uh, so you know, I I I I, I, I again, I, I think that like the primary threat. To uh, traditionalist values, I mean, I'm not saying that there's no threat from the you know culturally avant-garde uh, left, but uh, I, I I'm not sure how substantial that threat is, as uh, you know, compared to the inequalities uh, created by 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 capitalism. Okay, I'm gonna pivot to Israel Hamas Gaza conflict sure. and one of the one of the arguments i hear from the pro israel crowd you cannot give palestinians a state now because you'd be rewarding them for for bad behavior and as someone with some acquaintance of history i, I recognize that almost all states have been created through the use of violence that that uh, if the palestinians happen to get a state of their own as a result of the October 7 attacks, they would be you know, right along with you know, a large number of states as a result of killing people. That's, that's why they got their, yeah. their state. So from philosophical first principles, you don't want to reward people for bad behavior. But empirically, uh, this is what happens all the time in history. So it's another conflict between philosophical first principles and empirical reality, which has been an undercurrent in our discussion today. Any thoughts on this type of thinking? Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I've always been and I continue to be uh, in favor of, uh, of a Palestinian, of a Palestinian state, you, you know, I, um, there, yeah, there's this, this uh, idea that you hear among, I guess, the, the, Hasbara, right? It's like you know, yeah. The, the you know the Palestinians are essentially you know insane. They've been overtaken by these, be it anti-Semitic or fundamentalist or whatever you call them, you know, impulses. And you know, we just have we have to hit hit back because the, their underlying impetus is is irrational, and therefore any attempt at compromise uh will will simply encourage you know the underlying irrational fire the you know the irrational rage that's what you hear all the time but i mean the reality is is that if you look at israel's founders and in fact many important uh government and military leaders throughout israeli history uh, they've all acknowledged that the Palestinians are not crazy. You know, in uh, 19, uh, 1956, uh, Moshe Dayan uh, went to a, uh, a memorial service 
for security guards who had been killed by in near Gaza by someone who had crossed over Gaza. And he said, you know, of course we have to defend our land, but let's not seethe in rage against the person who crossed over. Put yourself in their place. You know, they used to live on this side of the border. Uh, they're now crowded into this strip. It's completely natural they respond in the same way. Ben-Gurion, same, he, he said similar things. Uh, Ehud Barak said, well, what if you'd been born a Palestinian? Where would you end up? And he said, I would have joined Hamas. So, you know, this idea that there is this uh, madness on the Palestinian side uh, has been rejected by, you know, Israel's own founding fathers. Um, and I recognize that, yes, you know, certainly um, I'm not I'm not denying that this, you know, there is a, this Islamist fundamentalist uh, fundamentalism is real. And that there certainly exist people who will, until the end of their days, uh, seek to eliminate Israel, irrespective of whatever compromises it offers. You know, those people uh, exist. Uh, but I don't think it's it's the it's the average uh, Palestinian who just wants to have a uh, a normal life. And you know the proof of that is uh, if you look at the Israeli Palestinians, you know, the Israeli Arabs. You know there have been points of tension between them and uh, Jewish Israelis, but but overall, you know, even though they're aggrieved in in various ways. Uh, they're not, you know, they're not fanatics. They're just trying to, you know, build families, build businesses, et cetera, et cetera. They're just sort of uh, normal people. So obviously this kind of background idea that there's something in the, uh, you know, Palestinian culture, which is going to like push them into ever greater conflict, irrespective of what compromises you make, is is refuted by that example. Because you see they've been treated differently, notwithstanding, you know, various forms of discrimination and so forth. They have real lives. And so they're not given to that fanaticism. So that's, you know, I, I kind of, I, you know, I, yeah, I reject this kind of uh, Sam Harris and others. It's just like the uh, perennial uh, manifestation of, uh, of Islam or Arabism or, 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 or what have you. Uh, the Israeli Arabs show that, you know, compromise is possible. Yeah, I I uh, agree with that. I, I don't agree with the uh, Hasbara pro-Israel line that there's just something inherently fanatical, delusional, you know, violent, uh, bloodthirsty about Palestinians that uh, they, like everyone else, are a product of their, their genetics, their history, and the, the context in which they're operating. And life in Gaza has been pretty brutal, in large part because of Israeli choices, but in large part because of Egyptian choices, and then a combination with the uh, Gazan choices. So this this combination has created an absolutely brutal uh, life for them there. Uh, did you want to add something? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I think at this point, I think I, I, ceasefire is uh, is definitely warranted. The idea that sort of if you if you stop now, you know, they'll simply be encouraged. I, again, I think this is not something which which they will uh which they will uh forget you know um 
and again, it's just, you know, uh, October 7th happened because of the incompetence of the Israeli government, uh, not because um, not because Hamas was so powerful. You know, they weren't the uh, the Wehrmacht in uh, 1940 or, uh, or or whatever. So but again, so it's, it's, it's yeah, it's the Israeli military establishment. They're, they're transferring. They're trying to expiate their guilt through this response. Even though there's there's no reason why it needs to be carried uh, any any further. Okay, Sam Bankman-Fried, and to a lesser degree, his parents were major news items for what was it nine months, and then uh, Sam Bankman-Fried was convicted a few months ago, and there's virtually no news interest in Sam Bankman-Fried anymore. Uh, was there anything that you've found interesting about that uh, trajectory that's uh, essentially culminated with him going to prison for a long time? Yeah, I mean, he I, I think he's going to be sentenced. I think it's it's scheduled in, in this month now in March, his uh, sentencing. Um, and I mean, I, I, I think I mean, he had another trial. I don't know if that's been called off by the by the feds. Um, but um yeah, it it's 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 it, it's very uh, it's very tragic, you know. The um, but I mean, but he's certainly guilty. I don't I don't think there's any any dispute about that. I, I I mean, there has to have been a conscious decision to appropriate client funds. You know, that's not the result of like misjudgment or miscalculation or or negligence. That requires a conscious decision. So I have no. Um, no doubt as to uh, his 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 guilt. Um, you know, is he uh, a, a nefarious uh, person rather than you know a weak po- person? You know, marred by uh, insecurity flaws and insecurities like everyone. Yeah, he's the latter. You know, I don't think he's like a uh, a nefarious character. I think I think it, it is probably you know. A lot of you know, kind of like you know, innocent flaws, you know, understandable human flaws that you know, under the circumstances at at hand, uh, led 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 to its his downfall. Kind of like how I see you know my downfall, the hands of uh of of, of his parents, but uh, but legally speaking, uh, you know, clearly guilty. Uh, you know there is um, there have been no criminal charges filed against uh, the parents, but the bankruptcy uh, estate has filed uh, suit to uh, claw back a lot of assets, including uh, uh, an apartment in the Caribbean, uh, lots of cash, um, money donated to Stanford, uh, things like that. So uh, they're in uh, they're they're not in uh, in in great uh, in great in great shape. I mean, uh, you know, they it may be their financial downfall fighting this lawsuit and uh, paying for their son's uh, legal bills and appeals and uh, and and so forth. I mean, you, you know, I mean, they're well off. They're Stanford law professors, but not uh, not Silicon Valley, uh, you know, billionaires by any means. Uh, so you know, they have. Uh, they have suffered, and uh, you know, as as might be expected, uh, of course, I I seek to see their fate as an, an outcome of the pathologies that I identified in my mem- memoir. That's just you know natural. Obviously, I'm gonna I'm gonna see things in those uh, 
in those terms. Um, but uh, no, I, I will certainly uh, be, be be following uh, their, uh, their 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 story. You know, they're uh, certainly you know flawed, but very you know interesting human beings. Um, you know, I don't think they're evil uh, either. Um, but they, uh, they, 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 they express our, uh, our cultural situation. Do you think that this, this ordeal has modified their worldviews in any way, meaning the you, parents? You know, I, I, I remember, so, you know, my third year of law school, I had the uh, legal theory seminar with 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 Bankman, Barbara's husband, and and Joe Kramer, or, um, Dean Kramer, um, Larry Kramer, uh, the dean. So, and I, I remember, I think our our very first uh, classroom uh, assignment um, was uh, uh, Martha Nussbaum. I think it was analysis of uh, Aristotle's uh, assertion. Uh, call or dictum, I get dictate, call no man happy until he is dead. And that's Nussbaum sort of elaborated that in terms of the idea of, of, of moral luck, how, you know, ultimately our sense of moral worth or any kind of worth, I guess, really is a, a function of our broader narrative of how things uh, pan out not our uh, intentions. And so our our presence is always held hostage to uh, to the future, which can, you know, pan out in a way that ultra, you know, completely discredits our entire understanding of what our life has been about. So that was, uh, I remember Barbara was uh, leading uh, that discussion, I think uh, Josh Cohen was involved uh, as uh, as as well. I know she was very intently into that topic and the question of moral luck and how randomness, things that are not intended, things that can't be uh, controlled or predicted, uh, play out into who we are, even though all of our, you know, both, you know, Christian and enlightened moral principles tell us maybe they shouldn't. And, and so I think, I think about this, this thing with what happened with our son is kind of the ultimate uh, social uh, vindication of, of uh, Aristotle's uh, observation recommendation called no man happy until he was dead highlighted Barbara in the first, uh, the first session or two of that class. Uh, and I think that that certainly applies to Joe and Barbara uh, themselves, you know, I don't know how exactly things are going to pan out. Um, certainly not the way they thought it would pan out about uh, two years ago, two, three, two, three years ago, you know, I remember maybe like a few months before uh, uh, everything collapsed with um, FTX. You're seeing some YouTube interview of uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, you know, big billionaire. It was right around the time I was like, you know, self-publishing the memoir on Amazon. And I'm, you know, obviously I'm sort of, you know, worried about how it's going to do and insecure and so forth. And like, I see like, 
<coughs> spawn of my nemeses, you know, he's all out there on top of the world. But uh, what? Six months later, you know, he's got nothing. You know, I'm richer than he is now, maybe. And his parents uh, went through hell. Well, yeah. I mean, putting it, yeah, putting his brother through hell. Uh, he had to sell his, uh, he, he had some sort of, you know, uh, uh, anti COVID, a public health foundation, had to sell his, like, uh, I think, you know, he has a D- DC uh, place that might be, that might be sought after. Yeah, his parents, maybe they won't have their home, you know. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, a standard restaurant makes a lot of money, but 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 still, it's not that much. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, the humiliation to to force that kind of uh, to upend your uh, yeah your parents' like entire self understanding and self conception in a matter of weeks, you know, something that they could not have imagined. Um, Okay. Yeah. What, what? One more question. Uh, what? What role does caffeine play in your life? Caffeine? Uh, yeah. I, well, I, I. Yeah. I. I drink. Uh, wake up in the morning. I have. I have caffeine. Um. Then typically at work, I'll make uh one cup of coffee. Uh, I used to make two morning and afternoon. Now actually, I, I make do with one. Uh, make it in the morning and sort of sip it. Uh, throughout the day. So um. So like two yeah, cups, high, two cups a day, two cups a day, that? two cups of coffee a day. Yeah, I think that that's, that's pretty average. Yeah. Okay, and what about stimulants like Adderall or Modafinil or any nootropics that you take? Nothing like that. Okay, just checking. All right. Um. Any any final words for today? Um, I think. Uh, We've done good, yeah. I, I, we've covered a ground uh, that I wasn't necessarily expecting to, but uh, I, I think I think I think we've drawn a coherent picture, whatever that is. Okay, great. Thanks, uh, Ronnie. Great to talk to you again. Okay, look, great. Thanks. We'll do it again. Thanks. Okay. Yep. Take care. Okay, I'm gonna. Bye bye. I'm gonna proceed on with the solo stream for a little while. I want to go to my email, and there's an email here from Kemadov. Says. Uh, I recall you mentioning that having been raised as a Protestant, the dualistic morality, which a sharp distinction is drawn between the standards that apply to how you treat members of one's in-group and the standards that apply to all others, was foreign to you when you first encountered it. I also recall you mentioning the particularly strong anti-Catholic sentiment that you recall from your Protestant upbringing. Do you find any contradiction between the two? Was the latter an exception to the former? Or is there perhaps a different way of understanding it, a way of reconciling the two, or even and understanding them in a way that could be viewed as consistent. Yes. So I grew up among Protestants who believed in universal morality. So even though many of them hated Catholics, there was no publicly stated sense that it was okay to rip off Catholics or to mistreat Catholics. Now, there may have been a desire for a reservation of privileges to Catholics, right? There, there may, uh, may be, uh, certainly there was in you know, Protestant countries for for centuries, and understanding that Catholics were an outgroup who threatened uh, the conservative, uh, the the Protestant approach, the Protestant hero system. So, I think one could have a belief in universal morality and still dislike outgroups. But when you're with people who believe in universal morality, 
you can loathe outgroups, be they gays, Jews, Catholics, but there's no sense that that I heard that it's okay to rip them off in business. There's no sense that it's uh, okay to beat them up. There's no sense that it's okay to mistreat them. There may be a sense, certainly at a different time period, where it's okay to withhold privileges from them. So you don't necessarily give them the vote. You don't necessarily admit them to Oxford and Cambridge. You don't necessarily vote them into public office. Right. So I think you can have universal morality, still hate outgroups and not want to extend certain privileges that you want to keep just to your in-group. You don't, that doesn't mean that you want to extend those same privileges to all outgroups just because you believe in universal morality. But it does mean a clarity that it's not okay to deliberately do harm towards outgroups just because they're outgroups as opposed to withholding certain privileges that you simply want to extend to your in-group. So that's clear to me. I don't know if it's clear to anybody else. And let me play a little bit from Decoding the Gurus. All right, this is where they rag on live streamers. It's not directly related to the gurus here, but actually I'm thinking we should do a season on streamers because streamers are just such a weird collection of people they're almost distilled gururosity in a way because they're all about cultivating parasocial relationships through their incredibly long streams right yeah. where they just say and waffle shit to hundreds of people or thousands of people who are looking up them i mean we do that too but the difference is it's asynchronous uh, you know it's like a radio it's, it's a water form of radio we we don't get the love back just in the reviews. And there, people are more often than likely kicking the piss. Yeah, so I've never watched a stream. I've never watched one oh. of these, Chris. N not once. But I do know that there are lots of people like typing all the time and they're interacting with their audience. They're doing like a stream of consciousness thing, aren't they? Like they're, they're just talking about whatever occurs to them as they play the game. Is that correct? Yes, this is correct. So there's a little thing I'd like to play for you. I'll provide the context. There is this leftist streamer called Vosh, uh, and he got caught while streaming. He opened up his To Be Sorted folder, right? And in that To Be Sorted folder was various, uh, like, point stuff, right? Not a good thing. Got to be careful. When you're live streaming your content. Um, happens to the best of us, Chris. Happens to the happens best of us. Happens to the best of us. But what usually doesn't occur is that that folder includes <laughs> a, a substantial amount or, or even any number of uh, lollycon style point, like Lolita anime, uh, mm -hmm. young presenting girls porn. And, and anime. Uh, anime. Anime, yes, it right. was anime, I believe. And uh, but the other one was horse porn, and I believe yeah. there were some crossovers. <laughs> like it might have been lolly horse. <laughs> it's a, you know, Wait, your life. You're, you're talking about an underage horse. Wait, who's doing no, that? Sadly totally... not. That no. way, that would be in some ways. You know, maybe it's not bad how it works. sure, but in in any case. I think there were some crossovers. Maybe it was two separate things. I don't know. But in any case, it's probably not what you want to flash. But his defense was pretty good. One of them 
one of the defenses was like he just kind of argued that it was known that he's into horse porn <laughs> because yes he wants to imagine himself as a powerful stallion it's literally a joke man the horse th the horse thing is not a joke this is we can't let this we can't let this be smeared okay if to whatever extent you know people can say uh oh we place it off as this or that okay i'll make it clear you can write this down i want to fuck a woman as a horse none of this is a secret i just to be clear you know Many jokes have been made about this, but I stand by it. My moral principles are rock solid. I'm, I'm my feet are firmly planted. So I'm not exactly sure why I'm playing this. I I don't think I have particularly profound commentary. Is there like a class distinction here between academics who record podcasts and look down on live streamers and the most successful live streamers? essentially blurt out everything that just comes to their mind. And so they are much more vulnerable and much more open as opposed to the more buffered identity of the conventional academic who will record his podcast and he'll be careful to keep his you know, porn viewing habits separate from his live streaming. So is this a, a social class critique that's, that's going on here? Planted in the ground. I've got my boots up. They're planted firmly. You, you cannot move me from my position. This isn't a secret. Uh, let's talk to a therapist. Well, why do you want to be the horse, Vosh? Because then I'd have a giant dick. Okay, couldn't you have an, a, a big dick the other way? Well, yeah, I could. Like, yeah, I could have a big dick hypothetically in any variety of scenarios. But then it wouldn't really be a horse dick. Well, you could be a human with a horse dick. Yes, but then I wouldn't have that powerful stallion energy using it. There you go. That's it. Right. I guess I, the point I, I want to make is that we are driven by all sorts of things that uh, don't necessarily make much rational sense and that reason is a really weak read to rely on, right? We are primarily driven by our genetics and our imprinting and by what our in-group rewards. That's the whole thing. Uh, like that's that seems reasonable. I mean, who <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so this is his. That was his first offense. Okay. So I think the behold. But his second offense is the one that I, I really want to focus on because the second one is the bigger problem, right? The, the kind of lolly content. So how, mm. how was he going to explain that? And this is just, it's such a unique defense that I, I think few people would have anticipated this. The other one um, is like a threesome with two chicks and a guy. And in retrospect, looking at it, Knowing now that that artist is a lollicon, yeah, I can see it. When I looked at it, I think the vibe that I got was like short stack thick kind of thing. You know what I mean? Uh, like the way uh, like goblins get drawn in porn. You'll, you'll have to entertain me for a moment on this presumed shared knowledge of how goblins get drawn in pornography. But you know how they're all like thick short stacks, right? <laughs> <laughs> he should not presume there is a shared knowledge <laughs> of Goblin Point, at least not in my case, Chris. Big <laughs> short stacks. Uh, apparently, short stack is the lingo for midget porn. So uh, that's that's the PC term for that particular genre. But but Goblin short stack. But I it just think it's a, it's, a, it's it's a bold defense. You know, you've got me all wrong, Copper. <laughs> I didn't I didn't know it was Lollicon. I I thought it was, I thought it was midget trolls. Goblin no, goblins. <laughs> goblins. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's so good. So that's just a taste of the streaming world, right? There's more to come in the coming weeks as we might dive in there. But yeah, so we do have a decoding episode today, Matt. Uh, okay. I don't know exactly why I, I played that, but I caught my Marsh attention. is the third largest left-leaning political streamer. He views himself as an intellectual mastermind. My moral principles are... Rock solid. I feel like I've outpaced him intellectually. <laughs> he sexually harassed a girl and then said she doesn't even deserve basic human rights. Poppy is not worth apologizing to. She is barely worth the fucking in intrinsic human rights to which all human beings are endowed, okay? Um, it, she is a disgusting human being. And that doesn't mean what I did wasn't wrong. It does mean I will never apologize to her. Or outright rewriting history so he could accuse his critics of the most horrible things. When he was doing his, like apologia arc and like laughing and saying that like a woman who was was a retarded child he thinks he's so smart that he actively tries to justify for cp just for fun it is possible for an adult and a child to have a sexual relationship and for it to have positive outcomes on the child as well pedophiles right who buy child mm -hmm. would you say they should not be held responsible for doing that Yes. I would not say that it is uh, unethical for a person to purchase child pornography. Making fun of Asmund for watching the pedo show, Dragon Maid. D a Dragon Maid. King of pedophile animes. I'm not watching this shit. While accidentally leaking his lolly folder. This is an example of the kind of structure that I'm referring to. Oh. And having his girlfriend draw the exact same childish anime character, with eyes rolled into the back of her head, mouth open, blushing. In his folder is a character that is 12 years old, as well as other young depictions of girls sucking horse wieners. Vash wants to be a horse, by the way. I'll make it clear. You can write this down. I want to fuck a woman as a horse. None of this is a secret. I just, to be clear, you know, many jokes have been made about this, but I stand by it. My moral principles are... Rock solid. I'm, I'm my feet are firmly planted in the ground. Since this has all been exposed, Vosh has been posting about Midna, the childish girl from Zelda, saying she's hot, asking people in Discord if they've ever abused a minor, and then saying hot when someone says they were a victim. This is a journey into the deepest, darkest corners of hypocrisy, dishonesty, and degeneracy. This is Vosh. Why do you want to be the horse, Vosh? Because then I'd have a giant dick. Okay, couldn't you have an, a, a big dick the other way? Well, yeah, I could. Like, yeah, I could have a big dick hypothetically in any variety of scenarios, but then it wouldn't really be a horse dick. Well, you could be a human with a horse dick. Yes, but then I wouldn't have that power. Okay, I don't think I have anything too profound, but what makes a live streamer compelling is that they share almost everything that's going through their head. And when you do this for, for many hours a week, all right, they're very likely to be all sorts of distasteful things uh, that, that are, are revealed. Okay, a little bit more highbrow here from Decoding the Gurus. This is excellent. They take down the philosopher, John Gray, who I, I quite like a lot of his work. So that's why I appreciate Decoding the Gurus taking, taking him down because they kind of alerted me to something that uh, I hadn't thought of as clearly as they have. With so, Matt, the psychologist, and clear okay. people, academics, perhaps in general, are a little bit prone to, but I find a rather egregious example of it in content recently. So I wanted to highlight. So this is a mini decoding, but a specific guru ish technique. Mm. Understood. Understood. All right. This added something to my 
mental repertoire, my intellectual repertoire to my decoding the world around me. I've encountered the problem that they're going to critique here countless times. I have, I have uh, on my own show, uh, weighed out different ways to approach it. But I generally, I don't allow that much indulgent monologuing by my guests. I haven't heard this yet. Um, no, you have, you have not. Crash. And it's from a recent podcast with Sam Harris. No, it's not focusing on Sam Harris, okay? We've already had enough talking to, with, about Sam recently. This is not about Sam. It's something that his guest does. And his guest in this instance is a philosopher called what's his name i had it a second ago he was a favorite John philosopher Gray. and Margaret it's from Thatcher. a recent episode called is moral progress a fantasy again this is so kevin michael grace was a big fan of john gray we had one of his books i think the seven types of atheism on our book club i think he was either a favorite of margaret thatcher or he was renowned as that rare intellectual who said some positive things about margaret thatcher it's not important the kind of topic of that mm -hmm. we're not, we're not, we're not hugely invested in this issue of <laughs> his moral progress no. possible no you would think it is but nonetheless john, john cray might have some arguments against that but let's set aside the <laughs> philosophers tendencies <laughs> i don't know how to put it what they like to do arguing things that seem like you should be able to argue them but at the end of that episode there is a segment where they address the issue of new atheism and atheism in general because apparently john gray was quite a strong critic of the new atheists right which includes sam so sam invites him at the end you know maybe what would you raise as your criticisms about atheism new atheism and okay. it's his response where we get to see the technique that we're looking at today so why don't I play the start of the response and then I'll stop it and we can see if you pick up on what I'm getting at, okay? Okay, all right, let's go. So here we go. I think we, yes. should, we should close on atheism and, and uh, in, in particular your, your criticism of new atheism. And uh, I, I guess I'll just put it to you. What is it that you think we got wrong about religion? Oh, well, a number of things. One is that religion isn't just or even primarily an intellectual error. Mm. I mean, if you approach the human animal in the spirit of scientific impartiality, you would observe that however religion is defined, um, it's not perhaps ubiquitous in every human being, but it's nearly universal in human culture. So if you started with that assumption, you might... Okay, so that's, that's a good answer to the question. But does he end there? No, he doesn't. I think not. it served some needs, human needs, or um, had some kind of functions in human life, quite apart from whether or not it involved uh, intellectual mistakes and or, or errors. So the first thing is a kind of intellectualist or rationalist theory of why religion is wrong. And of course, I've been rather caustic about that in some of my writings, because what I observe as an historian of ideas is that Okay, so a little excessively self-referential. Okay, mm -hmm. so starting off, 
I think that's generally okay. Yeah, that sounded um, okay uh, to me. That sounded cogent. Made sense to me. He's he's saying look. Yeah. He's saying look. My issue is is that religion is ubiquitous. It probably does fulfil some kind of functions, and it's maybe limiting to understand it purely in terms of it being intellectually fallacious or not. Yes, that's uh, and no issue so far. <laughs> okay, that's that was a reasonable point to raise. That this is one of my objections of the New Year feasts. But it continues. Who believe they shed every blast vestige of religious belief. I'm not speaking of you or even of other new atheists, but those who became dialectical materialists or Marxist-Leninists mm. or even um, scientific racists, for example. Mm. Uh, many of them were atheists. Uh, they thought they'd sort of... But they, what they hadn't ex removed in themselves was a need for some kind of... Uh, worldview or belief which um, which sustained their sense of value and importance in the universe which is, of course is one of the things that religions do and of course we have to bear in mind here that whatever the meaning of the word religion i don't think dictionaries pinker often uses dictionary i don't think they're that useful here but whatever it means it includes more than monotheism mm -hmm. because uh there have been countless religions in the world greek right right as though we didn't know that uh, religion includes more than monotheism ancient Greek religion, Chinese religion, Indian religion, most of the religions in the world, including what may be the primordial human religion, animism, have not... Uh... Remember, he was asked, what's your critique of the new atheists? And then he just waffles and monologues and just goes on and on and doesn't answer the question. So as a good host, you got to interrupt people, even eminent philosophers like John Gray, and they start going on and on. Uh, which probably all human... Uh, and pre-human, early human and pre-human cultures sustained was the idea that the world is full of spirits. And the idea that, um, for example, I mean, one of the unexamined no, distinctions that is... Right, so a big difference between the traditional conception of life and the modern conception of life is the traditional conception of, of life believed that, that God and the divine and, and spirits and devils and angels were all around us. And that if there was an earthquake, for example, that was, you know, God's intervention into the world. Often invoked by scientific, it's between natural and supernatural explanation. But that only really arises if you have a monotheistic or some similar idea of creation. If you think as the ancient Greeks did or the... the uh, Let's take a pause here. So <laughs> take a you... little break. Take a little break. Yeah. Uh -huh. So what did, what did you pick up there? The next, he's kind of laid on a bit more, right? He has, he has. And um, it's easy to forget what the original question was. Hey, so Sam asked him, what's your problem with the new atheist uh, take on religion, right? He started off okay in that first section, but now he's talking about that religions, well, you know, there's lots of differences, not just monotheism. There's, it all goes back to animism. So John Gray is 76, but people who are 16 and 26 will often repeat themselves over and over. And as I've gotten older, I've got more and more impatient Like with friends, with family. If they've said something to me 50 times, 100 times, 200 times, I stop them now. I say, look, you've already said that 100 times. I already know that you think it's absurd that Americans call their baseball final the World Series when it only contains teams from the United States and Canada. I know that you think it's absurd that Americans call the Super Bowl the world championship when it only contains teams from America. Yeah, you, you've made that point to me 200 times. All right, I, I don't need it again. And only the 
monotheistic ones had a distinction between the natural and the supernatural. What, what else did he say? Well, he also pointed out that there have been secular regimes which have been quite brutal and he implied. And so speaking of absurd, we've got Claire Coy in the chat saying there are no moral and political philosophers worth their salt in the West. And uh, Claire, by the way, how many works of philosophy, how many books of philosophy have you read in the past year? If I remember correctly, you don't read books. So you have absolutely no problem making sweeping statements about things you know absolutely nothing about. And you may think, oh, this is the internet. This is just what people do. There are very bad consequences to people who are constantly making very confident and sweeping pronouncements about things they know absolutely nothing about, right? It means that you're completely removed from reality, that you have a delusional sense of your own ability to understand what's going on in the world around you, and that does not lead to happy directions. I that you know, they were still searching, like they, they needed to fill the gap of religions oh, yeah. of the Marxists and the Nazis and Yeah, yeah. Well he he pointed out that some of the new atheists anyway came to be known to hold unsavory opinions and, and that, scientific racism. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean so that's a ding against them in his mind. But yeah, it's all a bit it's all a bit tangential, isn't it? None, none of it is really well, addressing the question yet. Yeah, so I mean, do we just give people permission to bore us to death or to say things over and over and over again and th there is a time and a place for deference but i don't have much deference in me i don't i don't usually put up with this like if it's not a boss right if it's not an important client i don't put up with it i will walk out i will leave boring dinner parties i won't permit people to say the same things over and over again i will interrupt their monologues i I guess it's a really important value to me to not be held hostage by other people's blathering. Right? I put up with it a little bit, right? If you're going to host a show and you're going to have guests, right? Some of those guests are going to blather to more or less degrees. And I deliberately, you know, put up with a certain amount of blathering because I, I know that the guests will also say unexpected things that I wouldn't have, have come up with. So you, I try to weigh it up. But to the best of my ability, I try to cut off blathering in my real life, in my odd life. I don't like it. And I try to stop it. It might be building their point. So I, I guess I'm becoming more assertive. Like when I walk down the road, and often there are people who just take up the whole sidewalk. Right? I no longer walk into the grass around them. I say, excuse me. Excuse me. If their dog is in my way. Right, and I might trip over the dog. I say, excuse me, if their child is in my way. I say, excuse me, if their bicycle is in my way. I say, excuse me, and 100% of the time, they move. They move their dog, they move their child, 100% of the time. So am I becoming a little bit more assertive in my old age, a little less patient? Let's continue. Congolese pygmies and uh, the, the Aztecs did and so on that... Um... The universe was more or less everlasting, but there were various gods that appeared in it. And that the world was, if you thought that the natural world was full of gods, full of spirits, you wouldn't make this distinction between. Okay, so Claire Corr announces in the chat, no one has been able to identify anything I have claimed that is untrue or illogical. 
Okay, what do you think is the real life trajectory for people who are so completely removed from reality? I don't think it's a good one. But I, just from what I've seen in my life, people go through an immense amount of humiliation and isolation when they are as removed from reality as Claire Core consistently displays. Now, maybe she's the exception to the rule. Who knows? Natural and supernatural. You would just look at things without making that. Uh, it's, it's an artifact. No, m- much of what passes for atheism is an artifact of monotheism in that although the beliefs are negated or reversed or turned upside down or rejected or refused, repudiated, the conceptual framework is still there. And you can get out of that conceptual framework if you try and inhabit the conceptual framework of ancient Greek religion or ancient Indian religion or ancient Chinese religion or Aztec religion. Uh, of course, in all of them, you'll find interesting feature, which is that the gods are normally plural, although in Indian religion, they're sometimes said to be aspects of a, a single impersonal god. Uh, now, I encourage you, if it's not your boss, and if it's not someone that you owe a, a great deal of, of deference, don't let people get away with this, because you're just encouraging their bad behavior. And it, it's tough, right? I have to overcome my own natural passivity. But I think it's important that we stop people, that we don't let them behave badly, and that we don't let them take us hostage. And we should not be just passive victims of you know, the meandering monologues. Uh, so they're impersonal as well as personal gods, but also then they're not necessarily uh, in any way uh, benignly disposed towards human beings. And this even includes uh, some of the early Middle Eastern... Yeah, we need to take our own side. When when someone steps on your toes, say, excuse me, when, when people you know behave badly and there's a low likelihood that they're going to retaliate against you in, in a way that will be destructive, right, we have to call them out for it. Excuse me, I'm sorry. You've said that a thousand times. This is boring. Uh, I'm, I'm going to move on. All right. We can't allow this. No, religions <laughs> from which Christianity uh, eventually emerged in Gnosticism and um, mm-hmm. other uh, Middle Eastern traditions. Yeah. There is something like Zoroastrianism. <laughs> Uh, Zoroastrianism then, in some of its forms, assumes the permanence of two principles in the world, uh, light and dark, and doesn't, in some of its forms, doesn't even assume that. So in Los Angeles, a lot more people get killed as pedestrians than as drivers. And so frequently when I'm crossing the street, a car will be coming right up to me. And I have to, like, yell frequently the F word. And and then they they stop. But I don't usually, I usually check to see who the driver is. And if they're a member of a group that commits a disproportionate amount of violent crime. I don't yell and scream and wave my hands at them. But uh, otherwise, I call people out. On the other hand, the downside to that is that it gets me emotionally activated and it can take me an hour or two to come down. So sometimes I'm just stoical about it and ignore it. Uh, other times I, I try to call people out. It's It's a balancing act. I don't like being activated and annoyed and angry for an hour or two. Um, the light will eventually prevail. It could prevail, but it might not prevail. <laughs> oh, Chris, I, I'm really beginning to feel, I feel for Sam Harris here, Kai, because I can hear him try, like, becoming maybe a little bit impatient. Yeah, I think guy. he's got the point. He's, he's got the point. ready mm. for it to continue because, yeah, so, again, the, the kind of position here seems to be that there are 
don't, there are a lot of people I know, I just don't have the bandwidth for them. They are just too tiring. They are too demanding. Uh, I can't allow them into my life. So I'm in a lot of 12-step programs. And so there are a lot of you know, very needy people who, if I return their calls, they would very happily just cry on the phone to me. They would express their suicidal ideation. Right? I don't put up with that. Right? I've told a friend of mine that uh, you can't talk to me about your suicidal thoughts. You should talk to someone, a, a medical professional, a mental health professional, but I don't want to hear about them. Religions which are, or cultures which do not make a distinction between supernatural and natural and that the kind of contemporary atheism is a product of modernity. So, yeah, when it comes to bad drivers, all right, I don't, I don't try to be dead right. I don't deliberately put myself in, in the way of ongoing traffic, but there's a walk sign. I'm crossing the street, and people are on their phone, and they just they, they, their car's just slowly moving towards me, like, ah! Or sometimes I slap their car, and then they get mad at me that I slapped their car that was about to hit me. Other thing I don't like is that uh, walking around in Beverly Hills, it seems like about half of people are on their phones while they're walking. So I say, excuse me, if they're like coming, you know, about, about to hit me. It's just really bad pedestrian etiquette. Now, bad driving etiquette, bad pedestrian etiquette due to cell phones. And I think a moderate amount of excuse me, uh, we need to do more of it to try to get people into line. So it's, it's kind of trapped into the monotheistic or like modern religious framework. But if you go back, mm. you wouldn't, you wouldn't have modern atheists. If you went to cultures where there was. Yeah. There are certain movie theaters that uh, I would not go to because they tend to be populated with people who are very loud and rude and noisy. So sometimes I have just given up parts of the, the public square. No concept of secularity. You wouldn't have secular people because it wouldn't make sense right that he also says that yeah like atheism is like a reaction against mono, a monotheistic religion it, it's not so it's just really a different religion's really important for some people like me it's not at all important for a lot of other people who frequently lead far more upstanding lives than than i do right there are plenty of people i know who are more moral than I am, more upstanding than I am, more successful than I am, who are married with kids, and they just don't give a darn about religion. So religion's important for some people, just empirically. It seems to be really important for certain people, but for plenty of people, they're just fine without it. Facet of money. Anyway, but he doesn't really support that point. I don't think he just says it. But Chris, he's not, he's gishkaloping. He's not actually answering the question. Well, how he's, dare he's, you, Matt? But what do we do about people who are walking and looking at their cell phones at the same time? I mean, I think we need to start giving $1,000, $5,000 fines for being on your cell phone while driving. Uh, I, I think that's just an absolute disaster. But uh, I think we need to start finding people who are walking in crowded areas while looking down at their, their cell phones. And now there's a better and worse way to do this, right? You should look up every two seconds. Uh, th those people are 100% better than those who only look up every four seconds. But it's, it's a huge problem, particularly in, in Beverly Hills, downtown LA, uh, Manhattan, right? Any busy, 
you know, city street is just plugged up and made coarse and, you know, less navigable because all the people are looking down at their phones while walking, right? If you want to check your phone, stop, look at your phone and then start walking. I'm not perfect here, but overwhelmingly, when I want to check my phone, I stop. I check my phone, and then I start listening to Moby Dick. He's, he's giving <laughs> illustrative examples. It's just, these are all relevant. Uh, so, you know, Zoroastrium, he's now yeah, talking we, about. Maybe we need all of this context about how there's many polytheistic religions, but Indian polytheism is maybe not quite the same because it, it, it it's... So one thing that I love about Orthodox Judaism is that you're not permitted to be on your cell phones on the Sabbath and on key Jewish holidays. It's really nice. Most of my social time with Orthodox Jews these days is during the Sabbath and Jewish holidays, and nobody's on their cell phone. And cell phones aren't going off, and people aren't distracted by their cell phones. So I know that there was one key member of the Giuliani administration who told Giuliani that he was an Orthodox Jew so that he could just get the, the Sabbath off to be with his family. It could be different aspects of the one God. I mean, this is all, uh, we hope, pertaining. It's all necessary background for us to understand the answer right. he's going he's to give, we assume, at some so, point to the original yeah, so question. Let's, let's see where it's going. Let's see where it's going. So there's a whole wide range of phenomena that come under some, maybe the best book ever written, to my mind, by a philosopher, at least on religion, is William James's The Varieties of Religious Experience. Mm-hmm. Because he, he looks... Mental ex- kind of subjective experiences of variety of people, including himself, but he he's very aware of the of the uh, of the diversity of of religions. Yeah, some people need vital spiritual and religious experiences, and other people don't. And there is a predictor for good behavior that's far more powerful than whether or not people believe in God, or whether or not people believe that God wrote the Bible, or whether or not people are religious. And that is, do people have friends? The people connected. Right, are people able to sustain relationships with other people? Right, people who are able to sustain relationships with others are invariably far more pleasant and reliable to interact with than people who cannot maintain relations. And so, uh, my first reason is my first is that religion, whatever else it may be, is definitely not an intellectual mistake, or not primarily. It's something much more profound, and and you can see that from uh, its near universality in human culture and the fact that once monotheism. Christian or Jewish or other monotheism was rejected. The underlying need for some... Okay. Also, I have significantly reduced my live streaming and the type of live streaming I do while strolling because I recognize it had a negative effect on other people. So if I just walk around, I just walk around with my phone like this, like a normal person, that doesn't have negative externalities. Like no one seems to be bothered. But when I walk around with my phone on a gimbal, right, that provides a better experience for the viewer, but it's threatening and it creates externalities for all sorts of people around me. So I have largely abandoned uh, filming with a gimbal around other people because I recognize that it promotes, it makes a lot of other people uncomfortable. On the other hand, if I just walk down the street, you know, talking to my phone, whether I'm live streaming or talking to friends or family, that doesn't seem to produce any negative externalities to other people. You know, I I do make a point to look up every couple of seconds so that I'm not bumping into other people. What about weaponized smartphone use? For example, filming strangers. Uh, Generally speaking, I think that's a bad idea. Flashing the phone menacingly in front of cigarette smokers. Yeah, I think 
these are both very bad ideas. All right, back to decoding the gurus. Framework of belief or of ideas or of a worldview of some kind of which bolsters the human sense of importance, both mm. as a, an animal, a species in the, in the cosmos, uh, and as of the individual. Okay, bolstering one's sense of importance. The way that people do this is through having a hero system, right? And religion can be a hero system, but hero systems do not require religion. So one big problem that religion has in the world today is that whenever it hits the news, it is almost for something bad. Because unless you are raised in a religion, it doesn't make sense to you. I think there was some uh, Australian rugby league, uh, first round of the Australian rugby league playoffs that went on this weekend in Las Vegas. And friends of mine in Australia are really excited to see if rugby league uh, takes off in the United States. And I made the point no one here has mentioned it to me. It, it's never appeared in any of the news media that I, I consume. It, sports means nothing to you overwhelmingly unless you're raised with the sport you have all these emotional memories so i have spent hundreds of hours discussing cricket with my brother and i spent hundreds of hours you know watching cricket with with family and friends so it has a lot of resonance for me if you didn't grow up with cricket the odds are 99.9 .9 to, to one that you're not going to get anything out of cricket right the reason that different sports have meaning to you is because you grew up with them and they had an emotional resonance. And same with religion. Unless you're raised in Orthodox Judaism or Roman Catholicism or Hinduism, it overwhelmingly is unlikely to mean anything to you. So Ernest Becker developed the idea of hero system in uh, The Denial of Death. He says, this is the terror to have emerged from nothing, to have a name, a consciousness of the self, to have deep inner feelings an excruciating inner yearning for life and for self-expression and for significance, and with all this yet to die. It seems like a hoax. What kind of deity would create such a complex and fancy worm food? So the idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is a mainspring of human activity, activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death, to overcome it by denying death in some way that is the final destiny of man. So we're all aware of our mortality. And this creates anxiety and fear. And the way that we can properly function with these fears is that we deny death by striving to be heroes, right? That we will take part in activities that our community tells us indicates we are part of something bigger than just our physical body, that we are part of something that will live on past our physical death, and that this will grant us a form of immortality. So it's easy to understand how a great live streamer or artist or writer or musician can achieve this type of immortality through the creation of a great work, which will continue to affect people long after their death. But very few people have this ability. So how do the masses, the great masses of mediocre people, fulfill their urge for heroism? Well, society acts as the vehicle in which the vast, overwhelming majority of people act out their urge for heroism. Right, so we disguise our struggle by piling up figures in a bank book, right, because that's part of our hero system, or by having a slightly better home in the neighborhood or a bigger car, a better car, brighter children. But underneath all of our striving throbs the ache of a need to feel cosmically special, no matter how we mask it. So we deny death by becoming fully absorbed in our social role, our communal role, our tribal role, our national role, 
and we then strive for whatever our community, our society, our tribe deems as most desirable, be it money or fame or status or performing God's commandments or believing in Jesus, right? So we can't live if we think about death too much, right? But we deny death through our heroic achievements. Right? When, you, when you doubt your own immortality, when you doubt the value of your life, when you doubt that you have any cosmic significance, right? for most people, this is absolutely crushing. ...who comprise it went on and was expressed in, in the 20th century in many different, and the 19th century and even the 18th century, but certainly in the 20th century, in, in ideas of history, which are very like some Christian ideas of history. So, we, well, I think we did have a little... We, we did have some kind of answer there. ...summary there, right? That, yeah, he, he, did, he did circle back to an answer there. Let's give him credit. He um, explained that, one, he thinks new atheists have got it wrong because religion is ubiquitous. So, you know, it must be doing something pretty important. Useful. Yeah. Um, and two, that he thinks that uh, people need a kind of underlying... Wait, isn't this guy here the bloke who uh, criticized Duvid for being bad for the Jews? That Joseph Cohen? Yesterday I was attacked by a mob of anti-Semites. They spat on me, kicked me, pushed me, and tried to beat me with sticks. Am I with you with this? The violence was instigated by Ali Dawa, who incited the mob to attack. I'm never going to live. The killing. Do you condemn? Six kids. Ali, what is this? What is this? Look at you. Look at you. I'm not going to do anything. It's a bait. Not a religious person. You Zionist scum. That's what you are. You Zionist scum. Hey, 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 hey! This ain't Israel. This ain't Israel. Ali, get out. Say in Israel. Say in Israel. Say in Israel, bro. Say in Israel, bro. I'm Israel. Hi. I'm Israel. This is why we need a country. All that proofing is why we need a country. Imagine living. Imagine living under these people. Okay, so this is how Mr. Cohen feels heroic, and the Twitter, the the. Post says, London's Speaker Corner was a symbol of free speech where people have I debated ideas since 1872. Now it's infested with loud Islamist orcs upholding jihadi rhetoric. Ooh, that, that sounds rather harsh. Surely there's a nicer way of, of framing that. Just a, it's just a clash of hero systems, bro. Worldview, a moral framework and so on, and that if you don't have religion, then people like atheists will just substitute it with something else, probably something worse. Marxism or like the, yeah, the history and, of 20th century bad ideas. And, uh, and the second one you hear a lot, don't you? You hear it from yeah, religious conservatives who will say that, you know, the problem with leftists is that they've, is that they've, is that they've, they've abandoned the good old fashioned traditional religion. They've substituted it with all these terrible new secular religions. Yeah. Yes, and he, he did also manage to point in uh, a book recommendation, William James's Varieties of Religious Experience, a good book, but sort of an aside, an, an indulgent <laughs> aside, given the like of the answer. But And the other point that he wanted to make is that there, what is that one? That, oh yes, that the, there's a more different types of religion than monotheism, right? So hmm. atheism and the new atheists are mostly talking about monotheistic traditions. They're not talking about animists and 
yeah. like polytheists and so on. That, that feels pretty weak though, right? Because any atheistic <laughs> argument that applies to Christianity is also going to apply to... No, I'm not just... Well, does it matter? Like, hold on. Okay, didn't uh, George Galloway just win an election? He's anti-Israel uh, British politician. Speak, you would think, would you not, that he was a pacifist, that he defines himself as anti-war. Now, how can this be said in good conscience by someone who has just, standing by the side of the dictator of Syria on the 30th of July, referred to the 154 heroic operations conducted in Iraq by the so-called resistance, a resistance that's run, as we know, by a senior bin Ladenist and by many of the former secret police of the Ba'athist regime. How can someone say, and say they're anti-war and they care about casualties, that they praise 154 operations a day, 145. I ask you. 145. He's coming down a bit. Um, well, that's what it says it's in not your leaflet. It's not that many. It says 145 let me, in let your me, leaflet. Let me, let me remind you what some of those operations were. Uh, the blowing up by military-grade explosives of the headquarters of the United Nations in Baghdad a few months after the intervention, as it was being tenanted by Sergio Gimiello, one of the great international civil servants of our time, who was fresh from, Amy knows more about this than I, but fresh from his role in the very belated supervision of the independence of East Timor from Indonesia and the holding of a free election in East Timor. And the jihadists who murdered him put out a communique saying, we have today put an end to the life of this disgusting man because he freed Timor from Muslim holy land in Indonesia. These people are not pacifists, ladies and gentlemen, nor are they anti-imperialists. If you haven't noticed, they call for the restoration of a lost empire, the caliphate, and the imposition of Sharia law on all non-believers within its borders. That's not pacifism. That's not anti-imperialism. And to praise the people who do this... Yeah, he's right. Uh, people like George Galloway are not pacifists. They just simply support a, a different hero system. They have an empathy for Arabs and, and for Muslims and see the West as having persecuted these groups. And so they side with, with Arabs and Muslims against uh, what they see as you know, Western imperialism. To sully the name of Charles James Fox, ladies and gentlemen, with such a squalid, with such a squalid uh, enterprise of brigandage and conquest is truly revolting. It's almost as funny as Michael Moore saying that the, the Zakawiite resistance in Iraq is for him the same as the Minutemen of the American Revolution. There comes a point, and I think it's come by now, where what people say is self Self-discrediting. Okay, Christopher Hitchens certainly had a, a, the gift of the gab. Very frequently, you know, disastrously wrong, but he always sounds profound. Back to decoding the gurus. These guys don't sound amazing. They just make some pretty solid points. Hold your horses. He wasn't finished, so let's, we're probably cutting him off before he's going to you know, bring up the better arguments. Mm in which history is a meaningful moral drama. By the way, that's completely different from some of the uh, pre-Christian writings on history of the Greeks and the Romans, because although there's a diversity there, the idea that um, there was any overall moral meaning to history was absent. Mm. The, uh, history was, and even in Aristotle, I mean, he talks about uh, the regimes of... So, yeah, the guy just blathers on and on and on, like uh, many 
many people that we have to deal with in real life. All right, let's cut to the chase. Anything, here. any idea, like or atheism? What about democracy or anything? No, no, that's impossible. Yeah, because... well, I think he, in general, he doesn't like the new atheist because, in general, his broader thing is that the assumption of progress is wrong. Like, so atheism... new atheists, insofar as they are embodying a desire for a progress in thinking, yeah. are wrong. Yeah. But, his, yeah. but his arguments here, yeah, there does seem to be... This is my issue, like, right? Like, 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 you strip away all of the name-dropping. And, you know, he's a very erudite guy. He's obviously, you know... Yeah, he knows the people he's talking about. He, he, he is learned. Good God. <laughs> <laughs> he is learned, but, I mean, this is baffling. Yeah, people who just want to show off their learning and just want to monologue endlessly are obnoxious with bullshit isn't it like you've got like the fundamental bones of his case is just what we just said and when you just say it like that it sounds pretty stupid but if you well, it's, it just sounds weak well, it's, know, weak. It's, yeah, well it's just a weak argument you know it is but if you add in so yeah a lot of people with that english accent be it john gray or christopher hitchens they make a lot of terrible arguments but because they've got that oxford accent right it sounds profound this, this great big long discursive tour of all of western thought from the ancients to not just western well thought through all the recorded history then you know maybe you don't notice that that's the fundamental point he's making yeah well let's see let's see it's almost at an end so it it, it might come to like a kind of summary point uh, some of your right your listeners maybe the first book by bronze age pervert <laughs> the uh the and this was in the New States when they can look it up if they want. Mm. Uh, I, th I think there's a paywall, but you can look at two or three articles without mm. making any money. And there I uh, went back to Ayn Rand, who, of course, emigrated from Russia. And when she emigrated from Russia, uh, I think in 1922 or 23 or something like that, but from about 1890 to about 1920, the dominant, the, the biggest intellectual influence in Russia had not been Marx or Marxists, it had been Nietzsche. And there were Nietzschean, there were Nietzschean everything, Nietzschean liberals, Nietzschean communists, Nietzschean nationalists, Nietzschean orthodox Christian, everything. And one of the things that entertained me in, uh, I've never been around in, but in her first book, We the Living, was the sections that she later took out in which she says, which the hero, a thinly fictionalized version of herself, uh, says to her Bolshevik lover, I detest your ideals, but I love your methods. <laughs> I... So, so yeah, maybe not, Matt. Maybe we should give up at this point because... It, it, I am because... So a lot of people like Christopher Hitchens and John Gray, they say a lot of things that just sound profound, that sound amazing. I mean, this is what gurus do. They they have a an ease with language. They They... They they know how to push emotional buttons. They they just have these these sayings and these insights that just roll off the lips, and and you feel like, oh wow, the world's just been you know, uncovered for me, and I now see what's really happening. But then, upon examination, a lot of these beautiful sayings just fall apart. No, <laughs> yeah, he's got the online and a book review he wrote of Bronze Age perverts books. Bronze Age pervert being an online alt right guy, but so. But but is it necessary to go into Anne Rand's history of emigration and immigration and the, like her jokes that she makes in individual segments of her book that you like? Like it's again the level of indulgence seems very high, and and this is something that every academic is familiar with at a conference where it's a, it's kind of comedy trope where somebody says it's more of a comment than a question, and they proceed to blabber on endlessly about their ideas yeah. without really posing the question to the person who uh, ostensibly they're supposed to be engaging with, and maybe John Gray. I, I hear that his books are more tightly written or whatever the case might be, but but it, I think this is really, it is an academic disease, but it's, it's a philosopher disease and a guru disease that they really go on elaborate, like mm. verbal wanderings, danderings around, and they like to sprinkle it with the people that they met with the, you know, the, the big books, the weighty tomes, the figures that they know. Uh -huh. and it, I guess some of it is relevant, but like, it did his points <laughs> really need all of these examples at this yeah. length. Because we're not, 
we're not finished yet. Right? We get, <laughs> How much I mean, we are. We're going to stop here. <laughs> but, but like, Aha, I got an email from Fahad. All right, we haven't had Fahad on the show for, what, four years? It'd be very exciting if he can come back. We're at 1920. No, we got, we slightly past the Enlightenment, but we're still not up. And like, could have been talking about Dawkins and Hitchens. Yeah, right? this like is the, the new atheists. He's got one of them right in front of him. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's incredibly self-indulgent, isn't it? It's um, and it's, it is like Jordan Peterson. He reminds me of, of him a lot. But you know, it's also a gishkalop, isn't it? I, I think it can be. Yeah, what's I supposed to say at the end of this? Yeah, so so that was your complaints about the new atheists, and that's one of the things that people do is that they kind of layer in so many things that by the time that you have the point to respond, and usually at the end they'll say something controversial as well, uh, or well, and another point is blah blah blah, and then your option is: do I try and work my way back through all of that, or do I move on to the next question? Because we've only got like five minutes left right now, and this is going to be like to debate his characterization of Nietzsche. Like, is that worth your your time? But in most conversations that you have in life, hmm. people would observe a social cue where, oh, I've been monologuing for quite a long time. So, uh, and you did just ask me a pretty straightforward set question. So let me just say, this is what I meant. Yep. Oh, oh, oh. And yep. In the world that I experience, all right, I, I can't usually talk for longer than 20 seconds without getting interrupted. I mean, I think that's pretty close to the norm, right? In, in the real world, right, you look for affirmation that people are interested in what you're having to say. And if you don't get that, you just wind up, right? That's what normal people do. Right? They look for nodding of the head or mm-hmm, or some kind of grunt or some signal that people are you know, reacting positively to your speaking. Otherwise, a normal person just wraps up. So with most people I know, I can talk for about 20 seconds or so before I, before I get interrupted. And you don't want to go beyond about 15 seconds unless you're getting positive feedback from people. From people, so still hoping to get, uh, still hoping to get Fahad on. I sent him the link a few minutes ago. Move on, but this is not the way of podcasts and gurus. It's almost a desirable characteristic in podcast world. Mm. If you're able to, I mean, it's not. It's not desirable, but it's some people I think mistake that for illustrating the profundity and depth of your thought. Right? Yeah. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. I think a good way to evaluate these things is one: he should you got to be more concise. If someone asks you a direct question, this and this is not a question that he's not unprepared for. He's written books about this, right? This, this is a, yeah. like so a bit like a PhD student who's asked to give the five, you know the elevator pitch or the three minute description of what they're doing for their PhD, you should be able to distill it into a nicely organized little response, right? And he didn't. So that's his first crime, right? He's spoken for yeah, far, yeah. far too long on too many relevant points, as you said. The second crime is, is that he just hasn't answered the question, not to my satisfaction. Like, right, you should develop an elevator pitch for anything that you want to say that's important to you. Imagine if you set an essay test for a student and you said, oh, and it's this. <laughs> explain, the main, explain the main objection to new atheism from someone's point of view. And imagine if they gave you and you, you were 2,000 words in and you were traversing Ayn Rand's immigration from Russia, yeah. then you, you would fail them because that's a shitty answer to the question. And this guy's a professor. You should be doing better, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit, it does remind me, you know, what Tucker Carlson, <laughs> Putin said, to answer that, let me first provide a brief history of Russia. And <laughs> like 35 minutes later, he's still talking about Peter the Creator or whatever. <laughs> so yeah, there, there does feel a bit like that. And it's, it, the thing here is just to say that this isn't an isolated example where this like it's it's kind of particularly noticeable when i was listening to it i i just realized after a while wait this is the same right so i've probably had a thousand times people have asked me why did you convert to judaism and so i have just cycled through different uh different answers so for for many years it was because i believed in it i believed that uh, it made people better i believed that it make me better i believed that uh, god gave the torah I was looking for something to hang my life on at a time when my life had absolutely fallen apart due to illness. 
So you can A, B, C, D test your elevator pitches for topics that are important to you. So I've probably been asked well over 100 times, what is the Alexander technique? And my response is, is boiled down for the last 10 years to it's a way of noticing how you respond to a stimulus and let go of those responses that don't serve you. So it's succinct, but it contains the, the essence of the Alexander technique. So also it should depend on the audience, right? Uh, many people ask me why you convert to Orthodox Judaism. They're not interested in the religious truth component of that journey. They want to understand the, the social, the psychological aspect of the journey. So you don't give a social and psychological explanation to people who want a religious and theological explanation. And you don't give a theological explanation to people who want a psychological and social explanation. It's the same question, and it goes on, but this happens a lot. You may have heard it on other podcasts recently with mm. other guests where people mm. do this. And mm. the, there are options, you know, the other person in the conversation can interrupt them and be like, but, but the thing is that, especially in an interview context, there's a sort of dynamic where that would be rude in just terms of the actual interaction habitus that we have. Like if you say, sorry, you're going on for too long. We really need to get to the next question. That is taken as like yeah. you being rude and the person is your guest. So you shouldn't yeah. do that. So yeah. And yeah. the audience, yeah, at least some of the audience definitely doesn't like it, right? You shouldn't let them finish, let them elaborate further. Oh yeah, some of them don't. Though if you go to Sam House's Reddit and look, a lot of people picked up on this monologuing tendency and they were not happy about it. And, okay, yeah, we sure got uh, Fahad. Uh, Fahad, how's it going, bro? Different people that how are you doing? Long you time me? no talk. Yes, I can hear you. Oh, yeah. Long time, to be honest. And it's crazy. A lot of things have happened since then, by the way. I've got two babies now. Got married. Wow. Everything's changed. Yeah, I know. Wow. I'm quick. I got married quick and I got babies quick. Yeah, I know. But wow. Yeah, how... So it's nice. How has that changed your life, getting married and having children? I started to hate the Western countries, even though I live here, I know. A lot of people say, you live here, shut the fuck up. I was born and raised in England. Right. But the more I see, the more I started hating living. I don't know, man. I started hating living in the Western countries, to be honest. I felt like it's not for me. Even though, I'm telling you, I was born and raised in England. It's just, I see how fake it is. You know what I'm saying? I used to actually believe in all that democracy and all that bullshit and all that nice life and stuff. First thing you could take it in any aspect is fucked, it's changed. Everyone's gone woke. There's too much they're getting involved in your kids. Like for example, I just told you I have kids now. So I know how it feels. For them to come and if my kid in Canada right now, he's seven years old, and he goes to a teacher and tells the teacher, I'm I don't know, I'm a girl sign. They're allowed to deal with him, talk to him without letting me know. And they'll deal with him as a girl. And they'll talk to him as a girl. That's, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is all that democracy and lives matters and all that bullshit. With Palestine, we saw it. I'm not saying Hamas is right. Hamas is fucked. But innocent people are dying and no one gives a fuck. Like it's nothing. Like, yeah, yeah, just bring the hostage. Yeah, I get that. But then people are dying. They shouldn't have taken hostages. They shouldn't have even done all this bullshit. But that's got nothing to do with innocent 30,000 people. 21,000 of them are kids. And you, yeah, you want me yeah. to believe in that old yeah. democracy and all that bullshit. They could shut. 
I'm, I don't want to get rude, but yeah, that's, uh, that's to, to be honest, that's the main two things I started hating. Remember when we used to talk, I used to compare England and Canada. Yeah. England is bad. To grow up in England is bad. You're just going to become ghetto. Because I was there. I had to, to. To be a popular kid, to be one of these kids, you have to fight. Now it's even worse. Now you have to have a knife. But back in the days, you have to fight, you have to do this, you have to do that, to stand out. You know what I'm saying? In yeah. Arabic countries, you have to be a good kid to stand out, to be honest. And I think that's, that's in Israel as well, by the way. Don't get twisted. Because I think these people are still... Religion plays a big role in that. You know what I'm saying? I think it's because of religion or science. That's one thing. I used to think Canada was a good thing. But then Canada's too woke. Too, too woke to a level. I got cousins here. They're born in 1986. What are they, what? 36, 37, they live yeah. in their family's basement because life is too slow. England life is too fast. Here life is too slow, but too slow to a, to a bad level. Like I'm at work right now, half of the people with me at work, they say they're gay, but they don't look gay. They just, I feel like they should be in mental hospital. Do you know what I'm trying to say? I swear, I've been, listen, listen, look, me, I'm not saying me, 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 but I've been around, you know? I've been, yeah. I've, I've been in five prisons. I've been in prison in France for one year, two months for trafficking people. Trafficking people, which means trying to bring Arabs into England for immigration, not in a bad way. Yeah. You know what I'm trying to say? Like, I know yes. it sounds bad in the States and Canada, yeah. And, I've, and I used to do it. I've been in Kenya. I've been in England. I've been in prison in England. I've been in Kenya. I've been everywhere. Norway, Finland. I used to take Ghat, the Somalian thing. Anyway, all that bullshit, trust me, Canada's getting bad, really, really bad. Because literally what they've done is mental hospital, instead of fixing it, no, we could just take you and put you in a gay place. But a lot of these guys are, are going to commit suicide. I could see it. I could see it. I could literally see it. Yeah, that's all, that's all that has changed in my mind anyway for the last four years. I don't spoke too much now. No, no, yeah. it's great. It's great. It's, it's wonderful to hear you. How are you supporting two children? Uh, what, how are you making money? No, no, days? I work hard. I work hard. I work hard. Me, I manage, um, I'm, I actually own half a security company. So we catch people. And that's another thing as well, by the way. Financials going bad for people. I feel bad for them. Like, I work, I work and um, I train security guards and everything. We're undercover, you know, LP, where you are, wear your own clothes and stuff. Anyway, so it's been really bad recently because people can't afford it. I used to catch crackheads back in the days. Now I'm catching people with suits. I'm catching students. And they feel ashamed when I catch them. Like it's their first time and they try and get away with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. That means it's really bad. That means it's gone really bad. Mostly with this pussy. He's too fucking gay. Like, he wants to be gay. How true though? He wants to be gay. That's up to him. But he's turning the whole country like that. And it's bad. It's really bad. He just, I don't know. It's got, he needs to go. Are there any... Who comes? Yeah. Are there any signs that someone's more likely to be a shoplifter than someone else? Yeah, obviously. Uh, that's, that's what I just said. Basically, back in the days, it used to be very easy. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, the, me, my little trick was the shoes. 
because crackheads can, can rub clothes, but mm -hmm. it's hard to rub shoes. So you just look at their shoes and then you know if that makes sense. That's a little thing. But uh, yeah, and then that's, that, that reminds me, certain people, I used to train people. You can't train common sense. It's common sense. Sometimes to me, it's common sense. God has told you, I've been in prison, I've done this, I've, I've dealt with criminals. So I know them. As soon as he walks into the store, I'll be like, yeah, this guy's going to steal. Do you know what I'm saying? Certain yeah. things, I, I, you, can't, you can't do education and then do it. It's nothing to do with school. It's something to do with hood or something. That's why he wrecked on me. Because I came from hood. I told you I came from five prisons and I came to Canada to change my life. And I did. I twisted whatever I learned. You know what I mean? From criminals and all that. And I've done it with a the, with the company right now. So it's good. Even though I told you, Canada's nice to me. I'm not going to lie. If you work hard here, they're nice to you. You could make money, but taxes are fucked. The problem is they take the taxes and they give it to crackheads. And that's what pisses you off. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and the taxes gone really, really high recently. Bro, to be honest, the countries they used to call third world countries are now much easier to live in. By the way, I came back from Dubai like a week ago. I was in Iraq. I bought a house in Iraq, and then I went to Dubai on holiday. Bro, that, these third world, world countries are the countries to live in. Not because I swear, not because I'm from there, nothing to do with that. It's just common sense, tax-free, you're good, you're relaxed, there's not that much bills and people running after you, and you have to pay here, pay there, pay your fees, do that. You're just like a robot here now. Literally, you're just a robot. Whatever you make, you have to pay... And why would I have to pay half of whatever I make? And I'm living in a rich country. It's not like I'm in, like in England, I get it, they're broke. But Canada's one of the richest countries in the world. Why would I have to pay half of what I make? Do you know what I'm saying? Half. Yeah. You're not asking for 15%, 10%. Literally, it gets to half because if you make more than 70 a year, then they'll take higher. Doesn't make sense to me anyway. I would rather go live in another country, and these countries are moving up quick. And the main reason they're moving up back to politics is MBS. As much as I don't like him, but he's working hard for his country and other countries around him. What do you have against they're MBS? They're going to become the new, the new Europe. Uh, the way he's doing it, the, the, he, he's fake. Whatever, whatever face he shows to the West is not the same face he shows to his people. If that makes sense. Like, if you say anything, anything Saudi Arabia, not, not even get rude to him or anything, you could just say, I didn't like this place, for example, you'll go to prison. But then he'll come out on TV, speak English, try to be nice, try to say, yes, yeah, not me, it's other people. He's basically Saddam Hussein, but in a more intelligent way. But uh, yeah, and yeah, I've heard the yeah, I've I've heard the argument you know, that Arabs need a very strict uh, ruler, otherwise they'll misbehave. Uh, no, no, they need the ruler. Like, uh, okay, it depends. It depends which Arabs, by the way. Some Arabs are easy to rule, like Saudis. I could go rule them right now. They don't get these people. Just want to eat and sleep. Do you know what I'm saying? They're like animals. Yeah. Iraqis are hard to rule. Iranians are hard to rule. Do you know what I'm saying? So because of, I think, because of the history or the culture or something, like Egyptians, the easiest to rule. Because if, if they had 1% common sense, this guy wouldn't stay a day. 
Sisi wouldn't stay for a day. He just fucked up the whole country for the next, I don't know, 100 years. The debt and everything. You know what I'm saying? But Iraqis know. Uh, because of what they went through and even in history. You know what I'm saying? If you go back to history, Iraq has always been one of the hardest countries to rule because I think because of them, uh, they're more educated. You know what I'm saying? So they have parties, they have this, they have different beliefs. No, not, not religious beliefs, political beliefs. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's hard to deal with. But Saudis are easy. Saudi, you could just tell them, you could just bring, like when they, when he wanted to make them religious, he told them just religion. When he told them go dance, they just went all dance now. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it, yeah. it, it doesn't make sense. Do you know what I'm saying? How did ISIS come out of Saudi and then Saudi now are dancing? The same guy who used to go fight for ISIS is dancing for Rihanna, I'm saying. Doesn't make sense. Do you know what I'm saying? But they're just like that. They're just, they're very easy. You can't do that to Iraqis. You, uh, Iranians, you can't do it, but you have to do it by force, which would what's happening right now. Which Arab countries do you think are run the most effectively and efficiently? <laughs> They're easy to listen. It depends. It depends what country. Like I'll tell you, most of the Khalid, um, which means the Gulf, most of the Gulf countries are easy to run because they're tribal. You know what I'm saying? It's easy mm -hmm. to deal with them. Like I'll give you an example. I don't. I don't think you know that. You know Saudi, yeah? Like the king of Saudi Arabia. Yes. He's uh, uh, not Salman. He's dad. Okay, Abdulaziz. Abdulaziz got married to all the tribe leaders. His kids. Him and his kids tried to get married to most of the tribe leaders. Like MBS's mom, her dad's a tribe leader and one of the most famous Arab tribe leaders. Nothing to do with him. So they wanted to bring everything together. So basically, if people say that we don't like MBS, for example, then his tribe, his mom's tribe would back him up. Does that make sense? Yes. So he's done that. Yeah, he's done that with most of his kids. Now, 90% of the biggest tribes in, in Saudi Arabia are married to his kids, Abdelaziz. So it's easy to run, you know what I'm saying? Because they're all tribes, they're all the same. Iraq is divided into like three, four different cultures. Even Iran, by the way. Iran, if it was going to separate, it would become six, six countries. Iraq would become three, three, because the rest are not strong. Three, which would be Shia, Sunni, and then Kurdish. You know what I'm saying? Iran will become six. Turkey will become five. Turkey has Arabs, has Kurdish. That's a lot of Kurdish. There ain't million Kurdish. And so you the, the Gulf states. Yeah, so the, the Gulf states, like the, the one that hosted the World Cup of yeah. soccer, that they seem to be run pretty effectively. Okay. It's very basic. Go Google right now. Population of Qataris. Not people who live in Qatar. Qataris. They're like 600,000. And they're getting paid well, really well. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, they get, they get benefits to a level where they'll get benefits for holiday a year. So, and you still have people who go against them. I love that guy who's against the king of Qatar. I love him. He's a, he's a poet. He's a, and he was in prison in Qatar for five years. Read about him. He, he's just a crazy motherfucker. That he doesn't, li he doesn't like... He doesn't like stay quiet when he thinks something's happening wrong, even though they're telling him, yo, we'll give you money, we'll do this for you, we'll give you whatever you want, we'll give you fame, but he's one of these guys who think, no, if you, if you don't give my people, then I'm going to fight you. His, na his name is, 
Muhammad ibn Adib. Anyway, he's a poet. And so I'm saying, Qatar, with all that richness, with all that money, and you still get a couple of people who go against it. Because Qatar, it's a bit mixed, that's why. When the country is mixed, it's a bit, it's a bit hard to control. Uh, Saudi's not mixed. Tribes, everyone knows everyone. I, I, we even know them because I'm from South, South Iraq. South Iraq are the same tribes as Saudi Arabia, by the way. And most of us have roots with Saudi Arabia. But we separated because we're Shia and they're Sunni. So that made the little line between us. Other than that, my, like, let me give you an example. The tribe leader of MBS is in Iraq. He's in Iraq. He's in Najaf. Is he, so, is he uh, Shia? I know, I, I, no, he's not. That's what I'm saying. He's not. The tribe leader is not Shia, but most of South Iraq are Shia. Not most. Now, all of them. We used to be most. Now, because, because of the wars and, and they got kicked out. Like 40% of Basra was Sunni, but now 90% of Basra are Shia. So it's a bit changed now. But I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example, yeah? Yeah. Tribe leader of Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and Bahrain are the same. Imagine that. Same tribe leader, the guy who's in Iraq. They're all from, from a tribe called, I'm from that tribe. It's, it's big, really big. But anyway, that tribe's called Anizza. Okay. And then you have, uh, for example, Qatar. He's, he's from a tribe called Tamim. And that, that's, what, that's, what they, that's why they called him Tamim, the king of Qatar. Uh, uh, the tribe leader is in Iraq as well. He's in Basra. Uh, because, I, I'll tell you why most of the tribe leaders moved. Even, even the ones before, before, uh, before Saudi Arabia was Saudi Arabia, it was two, it was two countries in a way. Uh, the tribe that was leading the other, the other side, what, the, their tribe leader is in uh, Iraq as well. They moved to Iraq because Iraq was meant to be the rich. Before oil, before anything, Iraq is the only country that had two lakes, two rivers, sorry, and they had money, they had, they, they were much better developed than a desert like Saudi Arabia and all these other Gulf countries. Then the oil kicked in. But before that, they used to go work in Iraq to make money and come back. Do you and, know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, and how, how much time have you been spending in Iraq? You go back once a year? Uh, and uh, yeah, because I drop off my wife. Now I dropped off my wife and the kids. I go pick them up again in like three months. So I, I went and saw my family. My family came to Dubai. I stayed with them like 10 days, had fun. But yeah, I go Iraq. I'm in love with Iraq. Iraq is the new big thing. Iraq is basically, remember when they used to say American dream in the 80s and 70s? Mm -hmm. That's what's happening in Iraq right now. Because the only thing that was stopping, Iraq is a rich country. And Iraq, a lot of, uh, by the way, if you search that up, I'll send you the link. Iraq has a mo one of the most uh, educations, best education, like uh, people with, who will finish like 90%, 98%, you know what I'm saying? And their education and stuff. So Iraq with, with, with all these doctors and everything, they're good. The only problem they had was they couldn't settle down, you know, because of the wars, because of everything. Everyone wanted to become the leader, this, this, that. Recently, that changed because one of the main parties who won, literally, who won the elections, he left. He said, you know what? Uh, I can't. I, he, he couldn't make a government, even though he won the elections. He thought, you know what? I'm out. And you know him, I think. You've heard of him, Muqtada Sadr. 
Oh yeah, yeah. I was wondering. Yeah, how's he? How's he doing? He won. Okay, that's that's why Evan excelled down. He won the last elections, but then he couldn't make a government. You, you know, you know, you know. Uh, by the way, Israel is the same. Sometimes you win elections, but you can't. You can't make right, a government. Right. You can't. Yeah. Okay. So Dr. Assad. He couldn't. He tried. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Muhtar Assad. He tried. He tried. He couldn't. So he thought, you know what? I'm out. And he is out, and that made everything calm down. So now, by the by the way, let me give you an example of how good Iraq is. Yeah, mm-hmm. if you have a land, if you have a land, government will give you uh, eighty thousand, eighty-five thousand American dollars to build to build that land and build the house, and you could pay it back with zero interest and pay it back like I don't know, fifty a month, fifty dollars a month. You know what I'm saying? You could pay it as as high as you want, as low as you want, with zero interest. Okay, now. If you want to get a house, there's two. You could get two houses. You could get this one where you build your house, but you have to have a land. You know what I'm saying? So you could build it. And lands are not that expensive. But houses right now, like certain areas where my uncle lived, by the way, if I sell his house, I could buy three houses in the States. His house is worth 900 or something. It's $5. Wait, how much was it? No. Wait. Okay. Anyway, his house, it's, and by the way, I'm talking about the South here. I'm not talking about the capital. I'm talking about South Iraq, but it's a nice area in the South, right? Yeah. Their houses are worth now 900,000 American dollars. I couldn't believe you. Do and do they, have air, do they have air conditioning? But, yeah. they have air conditioning? They have everything, and they love technology. Like, they have the newest phone, the biggest TVs. They could, Because they didn't have it, you know what I'm saying? So they're crazy about it. Like, if I come to them with a phone that's a little bit old, they'll be like, ah, you're old. You know what I'm saying? They really love that technology, everything. The only problem is electricity. And they're working on it. Other than that, bro, they're getting, and by the way, they're getting benefits now. That Iraq didn't have that back in the day. They're getting benefits, and Iraq is, has always had something where, it's, like, it's not a food bank, but it's something that, they, uh, Kuwait has that, by the way, as well, where they'll give you food every month. And you have enough. It depends how many kids you have. So they'll give you oil for cooking, give you flour, give you rice, give you this. And it's enough. Most of the time, that's enough. Literally, that's your chocolate. Do you know what, what I'm saying? Do, and yeah. on top of that, you're not... Yeah, what do we do about Gaza? What do we do? What's the solution for the Gaza problem? <laughs> Bro, the solution is... And let me tell you what the biggest problem is right now, okay? Yep. Uh, politically, okay? The problem is, if Trump was there, Trump Trump uh, has this thing where he'll say what's on his mind, and he'll say, no, stop. And they can't, they can't accuse Trump of uh, being anti-Semitic or anti-Israeli. Why? Because Trump has always helped them. You remember he moved the embassy, done this, done that. Yes. So yes. Trump has this power to do whatever he wants right now. With the Democratic fucking party, because they feel like and that's happening in England as well. You know what I'm saying? Because they feel like if they say anything, they're anti-Semitic. They're with their Muslims. They're this. They're terrorists. This, this, that. So they feel like they have to do, they have to go that extra step where they have to shut the fuck up and whatever Netanyahu does, it's okay. Even though the Israelis themselves are not happy with Netanyahu. Because they, you know, we know what's happening. They're making their image look bad in front of the world. And a lot of Israelis don't like that. Do you know what I'm saying? Forget about, forget about Muslims, forget about Gaza, forget about everything. Their 
image in front of Spain, when Spain comes out, when Belgium comes out, when all these countries come out, it, the, the world the world's not the same. It's not just the, it's not like back in the days, US and, and Britain. It's not like that no more. It's bigger. People are getting involved. And that's what Russia always wanted. And it's happening right now. Now China's really important. Now Russia's really important. The states went, spoke to China to speak to the Houthis. And China came out and said that. You know what I'm saying? Now it's not the same. So you can't, you can't just you can't just make it like this. You're 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 gonna look like the bad person now. At the start, it kicked off as okay, bomb, couple of terrorists went to Israel. Now you look like you're bombing the fuck out of innocent people. Forget about Hamas, because you're not giving numbers of Hamas how much you're killing, how much how many Hamas are, di are dying, but we know that 21,000 are dead. So I'm not talking emotionally here. I'm talking about common sense. Do you know what I'm saying? So yes. people don't like this. They don't like what's happening. We and you can't you can't use you can't use the genocide card with Russia when just I don't know 80, 80 kids died. That's fucked. 80 kids is still is still kids dying, right? 80 kids died in one year. And then come and not use this with, with, with Gaza. You know what I'm saying? People are like, how do you want us to stop talking to Russia, to be on your side, on the Ukrainian side, and then come and see 100 times worse, and you want us to stay quiet? That's what Spain is saying. You know what I'm saying? That's why Spain went on the borders and spoke. That's what Belgium is saying. Some countries have the boost to say this. You know what I'm saying? That's yes. why the Italian today, she's, she's with Biden, and Biden said it. Check Biden's post on uh, Instagram. He was talking about, he's like, yeah, she came and spoke to me about Gaza and how come, how no aids are coming through and everything. So it's actually, you know what the problem is? I, uh, it's making it worse for Israel than, than for Palestinians. And now Israel is forced to, is, is going to be forced to have a Palestinian country. Back in the days, you could, they could have got away with it. You know, left and right, and what Netanyahu was doing, go Saudi Arabia, do this, Dubai, bomb. I video a couple of videos where I saw a couple of like Israelis in Dubai airport and stuff. He could have got away with it until what happened. And his reaction made it worse. Does that make sense? If he reacted in a more clever way where you could just act, act. I, 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 I couldn't believe how stupid Israelis are. You could have just acted like you care about innocent people. Just fucking act. But they were scared to act. Why? Because the party he's with are the the left, left. You know, no, they're not. Wait, they're, they're, they're right. They're, yeah, they're right. settlers. They're, they yeah, they support yeah. the settlers. They yeah, support exactly. Greater Israel. But it's stupid. It's stupid, man. Let's say, let's say, I do want to kill people in Gaza. Okay. At least I'll act in front of the world that I can. Do you know what I'm saying? He doesn't even want to do that because he's scared of losing his supporters. So he's in a situation which is fucked. And by the way, that's why today, what's his name? The guy who went to the States without telling Netanyahu? Uh, fuck, you know, I forgot his name. Off. I, don't, I don't know. But uh, what, what's the solution? Get a Palestinian state or one state that is 50% Palestinian, 50% Jewish? What's the solution? Or war, uh, whatever, the war party or whatever, war, war government that they made. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. The, the, he. he mm -hmm. Yeah, but but recently they had they had this thing where they checked who who what people think of Benny Gantz and Netanyahu. Benny Gantz got sixty percent. Netanyahu got thirty eight percent. That's why the states called him. And Kamala Harris spoke today and she said 
she said it's not acceptable this this that that people are dying and this and i think i don't know bro it's just trust me trust me i'm just gonna act like an israeli here okay it's fucked for me because i'm scared to go anywhere in the world and a lot of people are gonna look at me in a bad way and that, that's how people used to look at the americans um you know for a certain time when america was in the state wasn't iraq and afghanistan now it's even worse I remember I was in Dubai in 2009, mm -hmm. and um, so I, anyway, I went, I went in this thing, it's called Safari, where they take you in a car and drifting and stuff. There was two people with me. I asked them, where are you from? They're like, we're Canadian. They, so I was asking, where in Canada, this, this, that, and they're like, to be honest, we're not Canadian. We're American, but we know that everyone hates America, so we say we're Canadian. And that, that's, that's, that's what I'm trying to say about Israel. Now, Israel, he's making, and the only reason he's doing this, he knows this is happening, by the way, but he's carrying on for one reason, because he does, he knows the day he stops is the day they take him out, and he, he might even go to prison. So he's willing to fuck up the whole Israeli image, Israeli country, everything, just, just so he could stay. And I don't know if, how people are allowing it. Like, I, don't, I know people are protesting, but... It's it's fucked because um, I keep saying it. Forget about everything. The image they've been paying billions to to all these media and everything, CNN, Fox, this, that, and all the, all, all the posts about how Israel is a nice country and how Arabs live 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 there and and Hamas is a terrorist and whatever this this that. This all fucked up. Twenty years they've been paying money. Just, just to clean the image, because the Nakba made it bad. So they thought, you know what? New generation is gonna—they don't care about Nakba. But you're bringing all that back by doing what you're doing. You know what I'm saying? People are like, "Yo, what's happening?" You, even like I'm at work right now. Even fucking, even crackheads are asking me what's happening. I'll show you a video um, where the protest walks past. Crackheads are protesting with the Palestinians. Just because they see kids dying and stuff. Because you don't have to be a fucking... You don't have to be a Muslim. You don't have to be nothing. You but but what's the solution? What's the solution to, to the Gaza problem? The solution is, is how is Hamas still there? Why are people still supporting Hamas? Common sense, right? Why? Because of the situation. Because you're talking about our because the situation thank in Gaza you, is horrible. Thank you. Thank situation you, created thank you. Hamas. Exactly. Exactly. Trust me. Trust me on this, okay? I swear on my mom's life. I'm talking about myself. I'm Shia. Hamas don't like us because they're religious. So they think Shia are bad people, by the way. Even mm. though, by the way, even though Iran is helping them, but they think Iran are, are not Muslims. You, you, this, this is something between Muslims that people don't know. But the only reason I would, I would know how they're feeling and I would be with Hamas is because it makes sense. I'm not asking for Israel to go. Israel's not going to go. Tough luck. Palestinians, shut the fuck up. Israel's not going to go. But now, give them their right. Blockade for, for 15 years. That's some crazy-ass shit. Imagine this. What did you expect them to do? Like, I swear, what would you do? What would any anyone in the world do? If you have, like, and if you, if, you know, you know Gaza, yeah? yeah. Has the most doctors. 
they're very educated. That's why it's hard for Israel. Let me tell you something. I always say this because I, I talk about this on Instagram, by the way. Me, I'll, me, I love talking about politics on Instagram and stuff. But anyway, let me tell you about this. Arab countries are different. Some of them are educated, okay? Like Egyptians. They love education, boom, boom. Iraqis are more violent, okay? Uh, I, there's different countries, right? I told you, Saudis are more tribes yeah. and stuff, and most of the Gulf. Palestine is the hardest to fight. Why? Because they're educated and they're brave, to be honest. And their braveness comes from, from, the, from the Quran. Because they, they, they don't believe in no politics, nothing. They believe the Quran says, fight for your rights. Do you know what I'm saying? So they'll go fight. And they're educated. So they're not stupid. Iraqis, when they fought Americans, they were blowing themselves up, doing this, because they're stupid. They didn't know what to do. Gazans are very clever. You could get two people who will go blow up five tanks and come back. And these tanks, Merkava, Merkava 4, cost $6 million. So when you see Merkava's go like this, this is money, money, money gone just like this. <laughs> and, and even Israel says it. These people came, hit us, and left. They came, bombed us, because they're clever. Do you know what I'm saying? They're not just fighting and they're brave and you no know, they're educated most of them are fucking they finished their degree most of them have masters i'll give you an example you know there's a guy his name is um ah wait 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 it's zubdi what's his first name anyway this guy is but i'll find his name but i forgot his first name he this guy finished school in gaza okay and then he came to the states okay imagine this when he came to the States, he became a teacher, one of the biggest universities, and he was one of the one of the main engineers for F-35. The war plane. Okay. Wow. And he, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I forgot, I'll find his name. So what I'm trying to get to is these guys are not stupid. You see them like this? Okay, go search up all of them, all of them. Hania, boom, this guy, go search up what education they finished. And see if you bring it to the States, they become scientists, bro. They're not stupid. That's, that's why it's hard to fight them. That's why right now Israel, one of the strongest armies in the world, and they still couldn't do nothing after five months. And they keep having excuses on, on which area they want. You know what I'm saying? They said this, they said that. Now they say Rafa. Okay, if I give you Rafa, is Hamas going to go? It's still not going to go. Trust me. I, I, I'll, I'll guarantee you. I'll talk to you in a month and I'll tell you, even if they take Rafa, yani what? Hamas are all in Rafa right now. They're not in Rafa. They're everywhere. And you're making people go to Hamas by what you're doing. When people go to pick up food and you shoot them up, you're making people go towards Hamas. You're, 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 you're making Hamas, if anything. Let me tell you, let me tell you this, okay? Two, mm -hmm. two, two things that are really important. One of them, I'll, I'll tell you guys a story, okay? Mm -hmm. There's a guy, fucking hell, let me check on his name. Uh, Azwari, yeah, Al Azwari, okay? Al Azwari is a Tunisian guy. Now, listen to this, this story. Azwari is a Tunisian guy who grew up in Tunis. There was unemployment, really bad, boom, boom, boom. So, my guy went to Sudan at the time. He worked, uh, he, by the way, he's, a, he's an engineer, okay? So, he went, worked in a, in a factory. Worked there, everything was going good. Now, that factory at the time, Al Bashir, who's Sudan's leader, he changed it from a normal factory to a military factory. So 
So they asked him, do you want to stay? He's like, yes, I'll stay. My guy stayed, done his thing, happy ending. And then he left, went to Syria at the time. Because he wanted to get married and settle down and stuff. And Syria was beautiful, by the way, before the war. It was, I've been there seven times. It's beautiful. Because it has that, um, it has that history to it. It's like France. You know what I'm saying? Like Holland. It, has, it still has all the history built. Anyway, that's a long, but I'll come back to this guy. So this Wadi comes. Now, uh, Hamas had a couple of offices. They had the office in Syria, they had the office in Jordan, they had the office in, let me try, but anyway, even in Kuwait, they had the office, okay? Even in Saudi Arabia, they had the office, by the way. Anyway, so what happens here is he went to the office and he's like, by the way, can I help you? Can I help you guys with anything? I've done engineering and then I've done this. Are you listening to me, right? Yes. So I don't chat here. Yes. Okay, boom. Now, at that time, Hamas had this thing where, uh, there was a graphic, I don't know what they call them, but like a graphic designer, but military graphic designer, right? Anyway, he was, he was in Saddam's time. Before, after Saddam was gone, he had the image of, of a drone. Like he had it all set up, everything, and what parts you need. But all you need is an engineer to come and put it all together. This guy, no one, no one knows his name, but he called this SD. And he gave it to Hamas. He's like, I, I, I can't do it, but I'll give you... Instead of giving it to the new Iraq government, because he's Sunni, he doesn't like them, he gave it to Hamas. Boom. So when Zwari came, they're like, yes, we do have something. Can you help us out? He came, by the way, whatever the whole story I'm telling you, I can send you a documentary about it, because Israel, Israel spoke about it after. So uh, Zwari came, put it all together, and he was shocked. He was talking about it. They took him to Iran, and Iran didn't have all the parts. Guess what the second country that helped him out? I didn't think that country actually helps Hamas. Malaysia. So he went to Malaysia. Malaysia gave him a couple of parts that he needed. And he made the first Hamas drone. Okay? That drone is called Zwari right now. If you search it up, it will come up. Now, he, after he made that drone, now, at this time, no one knew anything. It was meant to be, because the Mossad is really strong at this, so it was meant to be quiet between them. After, uh, after he done the drone, Zain al-Abidin, which was Tunis's leader, after the Arab Spring, was gone. He ran away to Saudi Arabia. So this guy went back to his country, and he became a university teacher. Now, until now, we're not meant to know all the story, right? Let me tell you why we know the story. While he's teaching at school, at university, uh, I told you because of the unemployment, the Mossad comes into the image. So what does Mossad do? They go and they, I think they went to Italy and they started recru recruiting Tunisian, two, Tunis two Tunisian girls. They're like, come through to Italy, we got your visa and we'll get you a job, this, this, that. They gave them everything. The first thing they asked them to do is, do you have a brother or cousin? They're like, yes. They're like, okay, get them to go rent a car and leave it at the university. The other one, rent a car and leave it at the airport. So they did that, the, the two girls. And they gave them their money and they gave them a chocolate, a box of a chocolate. They're like, try it out, it was really nice chocolate, and they left. Now, when they done this, one of the girls ate the chocolate, she's dead. Okay? At that time, the Mossad came with Canadian passports. They came, shot, shot this guy, Zwari, the one who done the drone, and they left with these cars that were rented. The second girl didn't eat the chocolate. <laughs> so she came back, she didn't know. She just came back to Tunis, 
and they arrested her and they thought she was part of it until she told them the whole story. Then they found out who killed him, why they killed him. Because Hamas came out straight away after and said, yes, Zawari was part of us and he's the guy who made us a drone. And then, and then, and then the Mossad came out, Israel came out and spoke about it. Now, what I'm trying to say about this whole story is you make people go and want to help Hamas. You should be making people hate them in a way. Do you know what I'm saying? By being nice. Show that Hamas is bad. You're showing them Hamas is good. And I know Hamas is bad. I know because I, when, I, when I was flying out, I was a transit to Turkey. I was talking to a couple of people from Gaza. And I like to be honest, Hamas is bad towards us. The people who live in Gaza. But you're pushing them towards Hamas by doing all this bullshit. Does that make sense? And you're pushing the whole yeah. world, by the way. Now, this yeah. Tunisian guy, this Tunisian guy is one person, right? Imagine how many, how many Muslims are want to help right now, who, who are willing to go to Hamas and tell them, yes, I'll help you. They could be engineers, they could be scientists, they could be this, they could be that. Do you know what I'm saying? It doesn't even have to be governments. It could be people. And I told you, Zwari, Zwari was one person. And Israel said it was one person who just thought, you know what, let me go help. And the other guy who gave them the, the graphic design of, of the drone was one person. Do you know what I'm trying to say? You're do, it would never end until you show that you're the nice person, Hamas the bad person. Yeah. Okay, I got to run. I got to run. Let, let's okay. uh, let's Thank let's you. talk uh, another time. But uh, great to catch up with okay. you, Fahad. Have Thank a you so much. Day. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Bye bye.